David Weston. From Bloomberg World Headquarters in New York to our television and radio audiences worldwide, welcome to Balance of Power. It's a busy day today at the White House, and so that's where we're going to start with our Washington correspondent, Joe Matthew, host of Sound On, weekdays on Bloomberg Radio. So, Joe, bring us up to speed here. As I understand, the president had a pretty big video call with a lot of allies involving Ukraine, and then I think he got out of town. That's right. Just wrapped up that call a short time ago from the Situation Room, David, speaking with our European allies about the war in Ukraine as the battle for Donbass gets underway in earnest here. Both the delivery of weapons to Ukraine and the potential next round of sanctions were both on the agenda. The call lasted a little bit more than an hour. And to your point, the president is now about to leave the bubble, heading outside of Washington shortly on his way to New Hampshire today, where he's going to be talking about infrastructure spending which might seem a bit different here in the midst of the war conversation, but this White House promised that the president would hit the road this year and remind Americans what he accomplished with this bill. Today he'll be at the, at the Port Authority in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, to talk about infrastructure improvements there, dredging that area that allows bigger ships to come in. It all comes back to supply chains, even in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, though we should note as well, David, that is also home to the Naval Shipyard, a highly specialized facility that is used to maintain and upgrade our nuclear submarine fleet. The president will be there today as well. So, Joe, to be just a little cheeky here, I have to wonder whether the president will be wearing a mask while he's on Air Force One, given that ruling out of the district court down in Florida yesterday, yeah. which is really pretty revolutionary. But I really wonder, from the widest point of view, is it almost a benefit to them? Because now you don't have to wear masks if you're on public transportation, but it's not the White House's fault. Mm -hmm. You're not the first person to suggest that as well. A conservative judge did this uh, for the president. But I will note, as we wait to hear from the Department of Justice, the White House suggesting they're still reviewing that decision. Maybe there's a, a legal a a response to that ruling yesterday. But reporters who are with President Biden on this trip today will be required to mask up on Air Force One. How about that? Thank you so much, Joe. Really appreciate it. That's Bloomberg's Joe Matthew. You can catch him every day on Sound On at 5 p.m. Eastern Time on Bloomberg Radio. Now we want to come back to the questions of sanctions that Joe just referred to. From the beginning, even before the beginning of the war in Ukraine, the United States and its allies made it clear that sanctions, severe economic sanctions against Russia, would be an important part of the arsenal in trying to fight this war. We turn now to someone who supervised sanctions in in somewhat similar circumstances, Jack Lew is a former Secretary of the Treasury. He's now managing partner at Lindsey Goldberg. So, Mr. Secretary, thank you so much for being here. I say somewhat similar because, as I recall, you were presiding over sanctions when Russia did their last invasion of Ukraine involving Crimea and Donbass. Good to be with you, David. Uh, that's correct. Uh, I was uh, responsible for the sanctions program uh, back in 2014-2015. Uh, and have followed very closely the development of the plans this time and the implementation of them, which I think have really uh, been extraordinarily well designed uh, and are doing what sanctions uh, are supposed to do. We've gone further, as I understand it, this time than last time. Do you have any regrets at all? Do you think we should have gone further last time? Maybe it would have discouraged Russia this time? So I, I think that the situation is different and the sanctions response uh, and the response in terms of military support are different. Uh, and I think it's uh, also the case that we know an awful lot more now uh, than we did in 2014-15 
In terms of what the connections are between Russia's economy, its financial system, Europe, and the rest of the world. Remember in 2014-15, we were uh, at the end of the recovery from the great financial crisis. Um, there was a legitimate and real concern that we not throw the US, Europe, and the global economy into a tailspin. And it was the first time we'd ever put sanctions on a major global economy like Russia's. I think what we did in 2014-15 kind of set the rules for how a well-designed sanction program works. And I think this administration has advanced them um, because they've been responding to a rapidly escalating uh, series of aggressive acts by Russia. You know, and I'm happy to go into detail about the principles, but what they did in the first weeks was take very significant initial steps. When the attacks escalated, they quickly grew the sanctions program to include much more of the economy, including the Central Bank of Russia. And I think now, as the war is settling in in a very troubling way, they're looking at how to use sanctions to do as much as they can to cripple Russia's capacity uh, to continue to rearm itself. So I think the sanctions are being used extremely well. I think they were used effectively in 2014-15. You know, the thing about sanctions is that they don't automatically change an outcome. They can make it harder for a country to pay for its war. They can put burdens on the economy and the people of the country. But ultimately, it has to come together with diplomacy and the failure on the military battlefield uh, for the leader of that country to change course, for the sovereign uh, to change its policy. Right. Um, I don't know that we're on the verge of that happening, but I think sanctions are doing what they can do. Uh, Secretary Liu, um, one of the things you have said and others have said is essential in sanctions is that it be multilateral, that we get a lot of people together with us. A couple of the key players here could be China and India. We heard your successor, Janet Yellen, the current Secretary of Treasury, a couple of weeks ago say China really has to choose sides. What can the United States do without injuring ourselves to make sure China does get and stay on our side, so to speak, as well as India? David, I think it's important to start by focusing who is working together now. You have more than half of the global economy working together to put economic pressure on Russia. It is the most important part of the world in terms of Russian trade and commerce. And it's why we can go as far as we can go without there being a backlash against the United States. So I'd start by saying there's enormous cooperation. When it comes to Russia, China and India have different relations with Russia than we do. I think it's important to note that China is observing our sanctions. They are very skillful at understanding where the boundaries are between what is permitted and what's not permitted. And it, from the outside, certainly looks as if they've decided they don't want to cross the line and violate our sanctions. Do I wish that China would do more to stand up clearly behind the international law that protects sovereignty? Uh, yes, I do. Do I wish that China would put pressure on Russia that it has the capacity to do, that very few countries have the capacity to do? Yes, I wish they would. But I don't think um, uh, they're taking the position of opposing our sanctions through their actions. Now, I think that the, we have to be careful how we traverse the space now 
uh, as we put more and more pressure on the international community to work with us. We are keeping, as I said, more than half of the world's economy with us. We need to make sure we keep doing that. And we shouldn't allow schisms to be created between us and our allies in Europe, in Japan, in Australia, in Canada, in most of the democratic world. So I think uh, it, 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 it is not the case that it's in China's interest to lose contact with all of the countries that are putting the sanctions in place. Um, and I think we have to keep putting diplomatic pressure right. bilaterally and multilaterally for China to right. do more. Uh, Mr. Secretary, if I could turn to the U.S. economy here, something you had to administer when you were in office as a practical matter. Uh, we understand that inflation is a very big problem. We understand the Federal Reserve has now said they're going to address that by increasing rates. In fact, we had uh, President Bullard actually say he might go as high as 75 basis points, not his base case, but possibly in a single hike. This is part of what he said. I would point out that the 1994 uh, cycle uh, where we raised the policy rate 300 basis points in a year. And in that cycle, uh, there was a 75 basis point uh, increase at one point. Um, so I wouldn't rule it out, but it's not my base case here. So, Secretary Liu, clearly higher rates are coming. That's not a surprise to anyone, including the markets. But let me ask you, as you look at the U.S. economy, is the bigger risk right now recession or is it inflation? I think we have to worry about both at the same time, and I think the Fed is very much focused on both uh, at the same time. Uh, I have never been as concerned with how quickly they move and what their ultimate destination is, and I think the Fed has been signaling a willingness to move at variable speeds, either 25 basis points or more at a time. Uh, what they haven't indicated uh, is that they've pushed out their, uh, their objective in terms of where the ultimate destination is. And that's what I keep my eye on in terms of how much pressure it's going to put on the economy. You know, the markets try to time uh, when the moves are going to come, but in terms of the macro consequences, it's really where the, the, the ultimate uh, end interest rates are. And what that means in terms of growth. I, I think inflation is real, um, and it, it's very hard to know exactly how much of the inflation will roll off because the global situation um, is it's hard to predict apart from the economy day to day. Uh, it, it was not uh, on the horizon that there'd be a war in Ukraine uh, and uh, that oil and, and wheat prices would be where they are or that China would face a second round of COVID, another round of COVID, uh, and have a shutdown with implications for supply chains going forward. And it's very difficult to separate interest rate policy and monetary policy from the global uh, situation. The Fed is going to try, I think, to continue to manage a soft landing. You know, the odds are never good because a little more than half the time, soft landings uh, don't happen. But there's different uh, quest, different kinds of landings other than soft landings. That you, you can have a bumpy landing, you can have a severe recession. You know, if I were sitting at the Fed, I would still be trying to avoid a severe recession, figuring that I have time to adjust my interest rate moves and my monetary supply you know, moves uh, as I see what the impact is. 
I think the Fed's done an extraordinary job managing for the last two years, even if their uh, you know, timing can be questioned by some, I don't think that the, the situation is really the result of the monetary policy. You're seeing globally uh, higher uh, inflation uh, because of the conditions caused by COVID and the economic conditions in its aftermath. I do think we have to be concerned about uh, inflationary expectations settling in and becoming something that it drives up uh, a wage price spiral. But I think the Fed is focused on that. They're trying to thread the needle between the two objectives yeah. of maintaining full employment uh, while keeping uh, inflation stable. And it's a very uh, challenging moment. Mr. Secretary, thank you so much for your time today. Really appreciate it. That's Jack Lew, former Secretary of the U.S. Treasury. Now we want to get you up to date on news out of the U.K. Parliament. Prime Minister Boris Johnson has just apologized to Parliament after receiving a fine for breaking coronavirus lockdown rules. He said it did not occur to him that the gathering that he attended broke those rules. He is trying to draw a line under the scandal which has undermined his leader, premiership. Coming up here, what to expect from Congress when it returns next week with Libby Cantrell of PIMCO. This is Balance of Power on Bloomberg Television and Radio. This is Balance of Power on Bloomberg Television and Radio. I'm David West. And well, Congress is in its Easter recess right now, but it comes back next week. So the question is, what do we think it's going to get accomplished when it does return? For some answers to that question, we turn now to Libby Cantrell. She's head of public policy at PIMCO. Libby, always wonderful to have you with us. Let me start with one that I thought was done several times but wasn't, which is the supplemental appropriations for COVID. I mean, they whittled it down from $24 billion to $10 billion, but they couldn't get it done. What's holding it up? Yeah, there are um, well, several issues that are holding it up, uh, David. Um, one is this immigration provision that I think we'll talk about. Um, the other is just the the concern about inflation uh, and and also the the concern that there has been five trillion dollars now authorized in some form or fashion uh, as it relates to COVID and. Uh, the concerns among Republicans, but also some moderate Democrats that, of course, this is fueling inflation uh, going into the midterm. So there has been some sort of resistance to this in general. However, you know, with all of that said, it does look likely that something will pass. Uh, lots of public health officials are out uh, sort of advocating for, for this bill on sort of both sides of the aisle. Uh, so again, sort of the bottom line is likely something will pass, uh, but you're right that this has seen uh, quite a lot of lives over the last few months. Uh, so one thing, Libby, for those of us who aren't uh, as steeped in this as you are, uh, it doesn't seem that funding for COVID has much to do with immigration. But as I understand, there's something of division in the Democratic side, the Democratic caucus up there about this Title 42. That's right. This is um, a provision that um, that has to do with immigrants coming over the southern border. Uh, this is something that President Biden has uh, reversed from President Trump's days. However, uh, as you allude to, is getting some pushback among, uh, particularly among moderate uh, Democrats, in addition to the Republican caucus. Uh, so this could uh, there could be a provision that's tied to this COVID relief. The White House is pushing back on that. Um, so, so we'll see. But for sure, this is uh, becoming kind of election time. 
politics or the silly season, if you will. Uh, and immigration, of course, is one of those lightning rod issues. Um, and again, sort of has been one of the obstacles to this COVID relief. So, so Libby, another issue now that's pending, actually, after we heard on Friday that President Biden intends to nominate Michael Barr for that vice chair of the Federal Reserve for Supervision position. Uh, is this likely to be controversial? Will this go through fairly readily? Yes, yeah, so if you remember, David, um, this is a position that's been vacant just since uh, the end of last year. Uh, President Biden actually nominated uh, Sarah Bloom Raskin, uh, but she had to withdraw her nomination because she did not have the sufficient support to pass the Senate. And now, of course, he's uh, intended to nominate Michael Barr, who was actually previously speculated for to be nominated for the, the OCC, the Office of the Control the Currency, but had a lot of pushback among progressive Democrats. This was last year. But it does sort of show you how the politics around all of this has changed. And now he's intended to nominate uh, Barr for this vice chair of supervision position at the Fed. And I think the bottom line from a markets perspective is he's he's very likely to be confirmed or at least has much more of a pathway to be confirmed than Sarah Bloom Raskin did. Um, so again, the, well, that will be, well, first he'll have to go in front of the Senate Banking Committee uh, before he even is considered for a full Senate vote. But again, his his path to confirmation seems much more clear than uh, than Sarah Bloom Raskin, who again had to withdraw her nomination for the same position. Libby, you and I have talked repeatedly about the CHIPS Act and the China Competition Act. It's been called all sorts of things. I think USICA. Where does that stand? Because versions have now passed, haven't they, both the House and the Senate? That's right. I feel like whenever I'm on, we're always talking about the same things because uh, they they come close but never actually seem to pass. Um, so this this is a sort of China competition bill, as you as you allude to. The Senate actually passed its own version of the bill back in in June of last year. Uh, the House just passed its own version in February. Now there's a, a conference committee uh, that's being uh, that's being started, and those will sort of reconcile. The differences between the two, but again, sort of, I think the bottom line from a markets and from an economic perspective is that a bill is very likely to pass, uh, likely by actually the end of of the spring, uh, sort of you know early early summer at the at the latest. Uh, and this is it's important because it not only authorizes uh, two hundred billion dollars for domestic uh, technology infrastructure and and research, uh, but also appropriates fifty billion dollars for semiconductor manufacturing here in the United States. So this really is being sort of framed as a China competition bill, increased competitiveness, and again, and the, the competitive ability uh, uh, of the United States as, as it relates to China in particular. Libby, before I let you go, let's go back to one other piece of old business. Uh, the, I'll call it the bill that must not be named, Build Back Better. Nobody wants to use that name anymore. <laughs> but is anything left of that? Is there going to get to be any legislation out of that package? We don't call we don't call inflation temporary anymore, and we don't call call that bill the, the Build Back Better bill anymore. Although um, you know, I think our view has been and continues to be that you could very well see some remnants of that original proposal, particularly as it relates to some of the climate provisions, uh, funding for renewable tax credits for for nuclear in particular. Also, uh, could be coupled with some drug uh, pricing provisions, and then also uh, some tax changes, although much more marginal than what was originally proposed, 
Uh, and then some deficit reduction. That is very important for the key vote here, uh, Senator Manchin from West Virginia, who does not want uh, any of these provisions to add to inflation. And, uh, and being able to characterize this as a deficit-reducing bill would help to sort of advance that narrative. Well, I got to say, Libby, you give the best congressional survey course I've ever heard. It was really <laughs> terrific. Thank you so much. That's Levy Cantrell of PIMCO. Still to come, we'll talk with the Johnson & Johnson CFO, Joe Walk, about earnings out today and where they are on splitting the company. This is Balanced Power on Bloomberg Television and Radio. This is Balance of Power on Bloomberg Television and Radio. I'm David West, and we now have a, some breaking news. We have the Chancellor of Germany, Mr. Schultz, saying that uh, the sanctions on Russian, uh, Russia are having a very, very clear impact. That's according to Olaf Schultz, who's speaking even as we speak here. And to follow up on this, actually, we're going to go to Kriti Gupta, who's covering the markets for us. And we might as well start with what Mr. Schultz is saying, and that's about oil. Yeah, I remember this follows comments coming out of France as well. The French finance minister, Bruno Le Maire, very vocal about stopping oil imports altogether. Um, our colleague Matt Miller very aptly stated that this is a really important part in terms of Europe really ramping up the sanctions when it comes to energy. Remember, uh, I believe it was last week they said we're not going to take coal imports anymore. Now they're starting to warm up towards cutting off oil imports. Now we know the real heavy hitters, natural gas imports. Uh, but this is all extremely important when it comes to the oil markets, because off the back of that comment uh, from the French finance minister, J.P. Morgan said, if they do that, if Europe does that, oil prices could go as high as 185 dollars a barrel, which is really, I think, a number you haven't really seen lately, given that oil is actually under pressure, given some of these China demand concerns. Yeah, exactly right. But when we talk about oil, gas, fuel, we have to talk about travel. On the other hand, we don't have to wear our masks anymore. Is that going to help the travel industry? At least there'll be more demand for it. Maybe we can't afford it. See, that's the theory, right? That immediately, if you have no masks, then more people are going to want to travel. But it also has a discouraging effect, too. And I think that's the real hmm. trick here that does a removal of a mask mandate actually encourage travel or discourage travel, depending on how you feel about masking. That being said, this is coming at a time when TSA passenger counts are almost near pre-pandemic levels. So the airline industry has been very vocal about pushing the Biden administration, really lobbying for that removal of the mask mandate. Um, and yet, remember, a lot of their core business comes from business travel, which hasn't really resumed in the same way that, say, uh, leisure travel has. A couple of basic markets things, the 30-year. The 30-year yield immediate, or I should say intraday hit, 3%. 3%. Huge for mortgage rates, obviously. While. It's been a while. But, you know, at the same time, you are seeing higher yields, but you are also seeing higher stocks as well. And it's interesting that you're seeing oil actually decline, um, which is in some ways boosting stocks. The stock market far more, at least for today, in terms of intraday correlations, far more receptive to what the oil market is saying as opposed to what the bond market is saying. But what's not up, at least against the dollar, is the yen. Right. 13 days straight or something like that? Yes. The yen weakness is such an interesting story because this comes as the Bank of Japan tries to kind of uh, wrap their mind, wrap their head around really controlling some of the rates there. Remember, Japan is an uh, oil importer, so they're going to be dealing with uh, some of the costs that you see in the commodity space as well. Whether they're able to keep this weakness streak is a different story. All the markets you need to know about from Kriti Gupta. Thank you so much, Kriti. Great to have you here. Coming up, Joe Walk, CFO of Johnson & Johnson, 
is here to take us through his earnings and what's next for his company. This is Balance of Power, and we are on Bloomberg Television and on Bloomberg Radio. This is Balance of Power on Bloomberg Television and Radio. I'm David Weston. Chicago Fed President Charlie Evans is speaking right now at an Economic Club of New York event. He says that he expects that the Fed will raise rates above the neutral level. He also says it would be a great concern if inflation accelerates again. We're going to continue to monitor those remarks and bring you news as it occurs. Now, we want to keep you up to date with news from all around the world. And for that, we turn to Mark Crumpton with the first word. David, thank you. In Michigan today, a judge denied a motion to lower bonds for the jailed parents of a teenager charged with killing four students at his high school. The judge says James and Jennifer Crumbly's actions before their December 4th arrests were meant to conceal their whereabouts. The parents are charged with involuntary manslaughter, failing to keep a gun secure in their home, and not caring for their son when he showed signs of mental distress. The judge denied their attorney's request to lower their bonds, set at $500,000 each. The former chairman of the right-wing Proud Boys group proposed putting up to a million dollars bond to be released to home detainment pending trial. Enrique Tarrio is charged with conspiring with other Proud Boys to obstruct Congress on January 6, 2021. Tarrio claims he should be released because the government doesn't have evidence he planned to enter the U.S. Capitol on that day. Boris Johnson is apologizing to the U.K. Parliament after receiving a fine for breaking coronavirus lockdown rules in the so-called Partygate scandal. The UK Prime Minister's statement this afternoon included updates on the Ukraine war and cost of living crisis. It was his first appearance in front of lawmakers since police fined him over a birthday gathering, which was held at Number 10 Downing Street at the height of pandemic in 2020. The New York Times named Joseph Kahn as its next executive editor, elevating the newsroom's top deputy to replace Dean Baquette. The former Beijing chief has been managing editors since 2016. The paper set a new goal of attracting 15 million subscribers by the end of 2027. Global News 24 hours a day on air and on Bloomberg Quick Take, powered by more than 2,700 journalists and analysts in over 120 countries. I'm Mark Crumpton. This is Bloomberg Daily. Thank you so much, Mark. Well, Johnson & Johnson had its first quarter earnings out today, and it beat expectations on earnings per share, fell a little short on revenue, had to make some adjustments for the year for various reasons we're about to get into, because we have with us Joe Walk. He's the chief financial officer at Johnson & Johnson. So, Joe, thank you so much for being here. This is the sort of quarter we need this chief financial officer, because there's ins and outs, and there's some uh, things having to do with f foreign exchange, as well as some uh, product lines. Tell us what you took away from these earnings. Well, a pleasure to be here with you, David. Uh, it was a really solid start for Johnson & Johnson. I go through each of our segments. MedTech led the way for growth on the top line, uh, which is really inspiring to see. Our strong platforms of interventional solutions and eye health got stronger, and we saw a recovery from orthopedics and advanced in general surgery. So across the board, tremendous performance there. 
Pharmaceuticals continues to do what it does, and that's really deliver above market growth uh, in immunology, oncology, and neuroscience, while continuing to advance our stellar pipeline. And then in consumer health, we did have great performance in our over-the-counter medicines, uh, which help offset some of the supply constraints that we have related to our beauty and skin health uh, uh, franchise. We all we had that performance with the backdrop of continuing the process of separating our consumer health business, which the excitement is really building about what's possible for a new consumer health company, but also uh, for the new Johnson & Johnson. And with everything going on in the world with macroeconomic factors, war, uh, some outbreaks of COVID, for us to maintain our ambitious guidance that we gave in January, we think that's quite an achievement and illustrative of the depth and breadth of Johnson & Johnson. Uh, Joe, how much of a headwind has FX been in this quarter? Yeah, it's been pretty significant. So in the quarter specifically on the top line, David, it was about $600 million. We are now predicting that'll be about $2.5 billion for the year, or about 2.7 points of growth. On the bottom line, it hurts to the tune of about 45 cents. Uh, so it's not insignificant, but as we know, we manage for the long term. We're not going to have our management teams react to something that uh, it's important math, but it is just math. Yeah, you can't control that that I'm aware of very That's easily right. at Johnson & Johnson, as powerful as you may be. Uh, talk also about the vaccine, uh, because there's been some adjustments for Johnson & Johnson on the vaccine. What's going on there? Yeah, David, with any earnings uh, call, we, we aspire to be as transparent as we can be with our outlooks. And that includes saying what we know and then also being very transparent about what we don't know. And as we look at the uh, forecasted demand for vaccines in general, not just Johnson & Johnson's, we are seeing a global surplus uh, for supply. We know that there's vaccine hesitancy in the developing world. And so we're going to take some time to assess that. It's, it was really uncustomary for Johnson & Johnson to provide specific product guidance. Uh, we understood and reacted to the interest uh, this time last year by providing guidance because it had some, I'd say, qualitative uh, effects into how soon the pandemic could end. But we think that time is now past. We're going to enable shareholders to really focus on what's driving the value for J&J &J today and in the future. And that's really the current pro product portfolio, as well as the future pipeline. And, Joe, for those of us who aren't quite as uh, involved in these numbers as you are, give us the top line and the bottom line effect of the adjustment on the vaccine. Yep. So the um, so we're not saying that these sales might not materialize. What we're doing is we're getting less specific about to what extent they may have. The original guidance in January was a range of three to three point five billion dollars, and we attributed about twenty cents per share uh, to that vaccine revenue. We are still maintaining the twenty cents per share in our earnings projection going forward. So that's no impact uh, whether those sales materialize or not. We, we figure that's uh, within our uh, responsibility. And again, speaking to really the breadth and depth of Johnson & Johnson. Looking longer range, does it tell Johnson & Johnson anything about the mRNA technology as opposed to the ones that Johnson & Johnson pursued? No, you know, David, we're still very proud of the accomplishment from a scientific perspective, uh, the, the role that we played in, in ending the pandemic. There's many more tools today. Uh, mRNA will be a valuable vaccine platform going forward. 
But we also think the ADVAC uh, vaccine platform, which our vaccine was developed upon, uh, has applicable uh, meaning in the world of science going forward. We're currently developing our RSV vaccine on that platform right now. Joe, as CFO, one of the, your jobs is to assess and then appraise management of possible risks on the road. Identify a couple of them. Number one, China. We have a lot of lockdowns going on. Could that affect your business, such as your med tech business? And also more broadly, the war in Ukraine, the sanctions that are arising out of that, could that affect some of your supply chain? Sure. Let me take those separately. So with respect to China, in Q1, uh, we actually had a pretty strong quarter, but that was premised on our pharmaceutical segment. We had three products in oncology and immunology uh, added to their reimbursement uh, country list. So that really, uh, I would say, stabilized growth in the quarter. We did see a little bit of effect in our med tech business towards the end of the quarter, as that's when lockdowns started to transpire. And we'll continue to monitor that situation going forward. In terms of the war uh, in, uh, in, the in Ukraine, um, the inflationary pressures associated with that, we had a robust assumption coming into the year. I would say because of higher input costs related to energy, transportation, we are seeing maybe a 10 to 15 percent uh, upward tick in the negative direction with respect to some uh, cost considerations going forward. Uh, but again, we think we're broad enough to be able to manage those going forward. We're not taking anything for granted, uh, but we're certainly going to uh, be able to digest them as we see it today. Just about every person we talk with these days is about, on the one hand, inflation you just talked about. On the other hand, the risk of recession. We just talked to Jack Lew, the former Treasury Secretary, about that very subject. How do you, for Johnson & Johnson, appraise the, the risk of a recession in the next 24 months? Yeah, I, that's a, a really good question, David. I, I think you're probably better off with Treasury secretaries and economists that you have on the show. What I do uh, reflect upon, though, is what the pandemic has taught us over the last two years is we can't have a recession around good health. Uh, it's critically important, and it's incumbent upon companies like Johnson & Johnson to continue to innovate above current standards of care for personalized medicine uh, and making sure that those are all accessible and affordable. And so while I can't comment on the broader macroeconomic possibilities of recession because there's so many variables that go into it, I do know that there is a much better appreciation across society at large for just maintaining good, solid health. So, Joe, let me ask this. I understand why I'm not going to ask you for a percentage chance of a recession, yeah. but how resilient is Johnson & Johnson and its business model if there's a recession? How sensitive are you to a downturn in the overall economy? So we are uh, experiencing some of the inflationary cost pressures right now. We'll see how they manifest with a recession. Uh, but I would say good health care, again, I'll go back to the point that I think we've all learned during the pandemic. It's much more um, higher on the priority list for individuals and their families. And so I do, I do think that while nothing is probably completely recession-proof, I would hope that health care is one of those better industries to be in. Okay, Joe, it's always such a pleasure to talk with you. Thank you for your time this busy day. That's Joe Walk, CFO of Johnson & Johnson. And be sure to tune in on Wednesday for more earnings reaction from the C-suite. We're going to be live with Bank of America CEO Brian Moynihan for an extended interview tomorrow right here on Balance of Power. Coming up, media expert Jane Hall of American University on Elon Musk's quest to take over Twitter. This is Balance of Power on Bloomberg Television and on radio.
This is Balance of Power on Bloomberg Television and Radio. I'm David Western. Well, you may have heard something about it. Elon Musk has decided he'd like to buy all of Twitter. And he says a lot of the reason for it is he wants to restore sort of an open marketplace of ideas that he thinks maybe Twitter has lost. We welcome now a true expert when it comes to media, Jane Hall. She's associate professor of the American University School of Communication and author of the new book, Politics and the Media, Intersections and New Directions. So, Professor, thanks so much for being with us. It's a delight. I've read the first part of this book. I highly recommend it. It's very engaging, very informative. But let's Thank apply you. a little bit of it to social media for the moment. Uh, give us your sense of the role of social media, particularly in political discourse, which you really specialize in, and the role that Twitter is playing and has played. Well, you know, the, the internet and social media are the ultimate good news, bad news story in terms of the media and, and political discourse. On the one hand, it's been this extraordinary tool for organizing, political fundraising, mobilizing, creating community, uh, undercutting the whole top-down system of the media that has supplied many new voices. And on the other hand, it has been a home for a lot of hate speech. Fringe groups have found each other. Uh, there's been disinformation uh, in, the, in the elections. It's, it's a very huge factor. Uh, you have legacy media obviously now picking up, for example, TikTok uh, videos from the Ukraine. Uh, it's an enormous, enormous influence, and yet we don't quite know what to do with it. And in terms of the, the social media, in terms of Facebook and Twitter, uh, Twitter, of course, is a tool that's used by a lot of journalists. I thought about that when we have Musk's uh, talking about how he wants to buy it. Facebook, of course, owns Instagram. And during the 2016 election, a lot of Russian, Russian bots, uh, fake groups, uh, tried to disrupt the 2016 election. So it's really good news, bad news. Um, what I think particularly in terms of Musk is that he has some 80 million followers on Twitter. Yeah. Uh, one question that I've had that a lot of people have had, this idea that he's going to have the town square, it sounds as if um, it sounds as if it's a really good idea. And yet to have that be in private hands, in one owner's hand, we already have Facebook uh, in Mark Zuckerberg's hands, but he at least has you know, people that he has to report to. Uh, I think that Musk is trying to make some mischief uh, and whether he is sincere, we really have to see whether he could pull it off. We may, This could lead to more regulation in a way because I think people are looking up just in general in the, in the public and saying, our political discourse has been cheapened in a lot of ways by the, by the kind of extreme speech that is available in a lot of quarters, including on social media. You have people being targeted for hate online. I mean, at the same time, it is an extraordinary force. So, you know, that's why I say it's good news, bad news, David. Well, when you say that political discourse has been cheapened in some ways, we've got, as you may have noticed, a midterm election coming up in November. Yeah. Uh, what role do you think the media, and that's not just social media, it can be paid media, earned media, whatever you want to count. What role is it likely to play? And is it going to be materially different from what it was in 2020? Well, you know, there always are calls for improvement in how our elections are covered. Um, I think that there are a lot of people saying that the media in general, mainstream, legacy, whatever you want to call it, and social media should be finding ways to center the issue of democracy, uh, that we need democracy desks, that we need less horse race coverage, 
that we need less opinion. I mean, the problem is horse race coverage and opinion sells. And on television, you have punditry that is that is right next door to opinion. So, you know, there are a lot of there are a lot of people saying that it needs to be better. But at the same time, I think that what we've seen in, in the tragedy in Ukraine is a lot of very good straight reporting. Uh, I personally am a bit old fashioned about this. I think that it would be wonderful to have more reporting from out in the country, more reporting outside the bubble of the Beltway, more reporting on issues that the American people care about, more diversity of voices. Again, I think that the media in 2020 and the social media did in many ways a very good job. Um, I think that, that we have a situation where people say they don't want who's ahead coverage, and yet that's what gets eyeballs. And unfortunately, opinion uh, gets a lot of, of traffic. And, and I don't mean we should eliminate opinion, but I personally think there's an appetite in the country that we may have gone so far in the direction of partisanship in our politics, polarization in our politics, that, that just the news, however you define that, which is not easy to define, I think there's an appetite for that. I think you see that uh, in a lot of quarters today. So, Jane, I, I, some news just came across to the Bloomberg here for me, at least. And now I want to attribute to the New York Post. We want to attribute to the source okay. saying that, that Elon Musk now says he's going to put 10 to 15 billion dollars of his own money into a bid for Twitter. So he'll have his own money, his own skin in the game. But it does raise a broader issue here for me, which is we have seen people like uh, Jeff Bezos, for example, use his own money when it comes to The Washington Post. And, and we don't know how this could end up. But in the case of The Washington Post, as you say in your book, it's been perhaps to good effect when it comes to journalism. Well, I think it has. And, you know, people on the right uh, are talking about how Facebook and Twitter somehow have discriminated against them. I mean, that's the argument that's being made. When you look at the actual traffic and you look at the top Facebook sites, Fox News sites are top. Um, I think that, that we really are in an atmosphere where there's, there's a need to verify, there's a need to have a multiplicity of voices, but I, you know, I don't agree that Jeff Bezos owning the Washington Post personally is the same thing as Elon Musk buying and saying he plans to change Twitter and he plans to open it up as a town square. A lot of people don't even think this is a good business idea. I mean, you have to have some moderation. The tricky part is, how do you regulate speech? And what might happen in Congress if, if uh, this, this uh, kind of deal goes through? Do we really want a single owner of one of the most powerful and most interesting forces? I think it's different, frankly, from Jeff Bezos owning the Washington Post. Um, people would disagree with me on that, but I think this mm. is more concerning, frankly, um, because of the, the nature of, of what he says he wants to do and the fact that it's opposed by a lot of people who say, wait a minute, we're, we don't want to revisit the time when it was so unfettered that we have hate speech. There are a lot of people who feel that you look at the hate at, online directed towards school board members, towards marginalized groups, towards women in politics in the media. That's the concern a lot of people have if you go back to the idea of this town square uh, I think it's a false metaphor, frankly. 
Jane's so smart. It's clear why you are a true expert when it comes to media, particularly when it comes to politics. Great to have you with us. That's Jane Hall of American University. Coming up, no more masks requirements on public transportation. We get the reaction for the White House next. This is Balance of Power on Bloomberg Television and Radio. Balance of Power on Bloomberg Television and Radio. I'm David Weston. A little less than 24 hours ago, we got word that a federal district court judge in Florida had issued an injunction saying the CDC couldn't go forward with his extension of the mask requirement on public transportation. For some reaction now from the White House, we turn to our White House correspondent, Josh Wingrove, who's reporting from the D.C. Bureau today. So, Josh, welcome. What is the reaction from the White House? Well, so far, David, they're on the fence about whether they're going to appeal this. In other words, what now? There was a few confusing hours yesterday after this ruling came down, a surprise ruling from a lower court as everyone kind of looked around and thought, okay, well, do we still need to wear masks <laughs> on planes? And it seems like the White House is interested in a couple of things. Number one, they're sort of uh, giving up the fight for now, but saying that masks are still encouraged. So in other words, they're hoping for, pe- to, for people to do it voluntarily, even though the rule is not in place. And the other question is, is the power still there if they try to reimpose it? Now, there's almost no sign, David, that they're going to try to reimpose that now, given the season we're in. Cases are always lower in the summer. Uh, but suppose you see another uh, spike this fall or winter, like, of course, we had last fall, last winter. They might want to go back to the well and bring this mandate back in. And the question right now is whether they'll be able to do that. But really, it's looking like not a lot of great legal options right now for the Biden administration. I should add, David, that this rule was just extended by a couple of weeks. That's the shortest extension that they've had yet. So to be struck down ahead of the May 3rd scheduled expiry, another extension was possible. But this is a bit like, you know, uh, turning into a pumpkin at 1130 instead (laughs) of midnight. This was going to happen anyway. And so that's sort of a factor as they weigh the legal options. And, Josh, as I understand it, the White House has said this is a scientific decision. That's the CDC. They didn't make the decision. I take them at their word. But does it let them off the hook? Because that means we don't have to wear masks. And we don't, and if it goes wrong, the White House isn't to blame. Yeah, a little bit. I think there, you know, there's voices in Democratic circles among more moderates that have wanted the administration to move more quickly, David, on trying to lift some of these restrictions. I should note that you know, planes are not uh, yep. five alarm sort of centers right. of spread, studies have said, right. but uh, right. Uh, right now the, the threat is looked to be higher, of course, right. with people unmasked rather than masked. We can fly without masks. Thanks so much to White House correspondent Josh Wingrove. And this is Balance of Power on Bloomberg Television and on Bloomberg Radio. Audio Jungle. 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 Audio
Monday night from the University of Tennessee. The Lady Vols are looking to sweep this three-game series from Texas A&M. From Sherry Parker Lee Stadium, the Lady Vols with a lot of firepower in their bats. Actually, the same for Texas A&M. Game one on Saturday. Mainly Lee coming back with a great performance in game two to try to give them the win. And a good start for Haley as ball four skips into the mid of Kelsey Leach. The catcher, a lead off walk with Lee over at first base. Herzog fists that one into the glove of the second baseman, McKenna Gibson, for the first out. Herzog fighting, but I'm worried that if we have any more of these big losses, it's going to affect our chemistry. Yeah, this is a, could be a sort of a make or break weekend. It's, Cannon pops out to Davis at and then she watches one go by to end the inning. So the Haley Lee leadoff walk it's in the entire country right now. She goes down on strikes. Great start for Herzog. Over at third, Robbie guessed it first. And here's a full count pitch to Boutte. Great start for Herzog, back-to-back -back Ks. And a lot of free passes. And a 3-0 now to Ayala. So after back-to-back -back strikeouts, a four-pitch walk after that. <laughs> good day, probably followed by a good night. Pony puts a charge into it and hits another home run. The big blast. Her 10th of the year, Tennessee, jumps on top. Tennessee now has three, has so much power. I was talking with Chris Malveaux today about the potential of Zeta Pooney. He said the sky's the limit for this athlete. She has such a good swing. It all comes down to belief. There, a huge swing. Pictures at the plate. Gibson sends it into center field over the glove of Caden Baker. So the freshman McKenna Gibson with the ownership and get everybody rallied around. Ashley Morgan, first pitch she sees. That's the fifth batter that Herzog has hit this weekend. Leave being a vol without hitting a home run and able to capitalize with a huge grand slam yesterday for the walk-off win. Yeah. This is a tough play at short for Wooly, but she was able to charge it. Two-run lead. Not much to get chewed on. Good start. That's smoked up the middle. Morgan Smith liked the first pitch she saw from Edmondson. Lead-off single in the second starting at short last year as a true freshman. That's popped up. Ivy Smith retreats back, but Ayala, her play in left field, makes the out. Growing up, said she just figured she needed to have a different experience come college. Gibson gobbles it up to get Baker, Smith advances to second, but... So she has been trying to take those reins for Texas A&M. Strikeout for Edmondson. 
her second of the game. In the circle. And with some uh, errors and miscues, uh, AM giving up some unearned runs as well. Pars Caitlin Parsons getting the start today. Let me amend that, earning the start tonight because she's been doing some great things off the bench. Gets participate here at Tennessee. I talked with her this morning about what's it like playing for different programs. And she said, you know, it's kind of cool because I played under Mike Candrea and he gave me this perspective, this certain perspective. And then I step on campus to Tennessee and had a different hitting coach last year. And now Chris Malvo this year, she says, I just, I'm living the best of mm. all three worlds because I have so much information now to pull from. And we've seen her offensive numbers skyrocket. And it looks as though we've got an illegal pitch situation. So Ivy Davis goes down to first base. Kenny Rogers this week as well. High heat gets Malloy for the second time. Third strikeout for her. That they need to back up their pitchers. And another strikeout. There is nothing going to get go. in her eyes here tonight. Kind of kind of cloudy, but hey, she could feel Torres ends it. So the first two on for the Lady Vols. A&M taking her team to three World Series. Woolley went upstairs. <laughs> Another full count to Haley Lee. Oh, that was absolutely hammered. Haley Lee, with a terrific at bat, crushed the 11th pitch she saw in that at bat. Well, and she kept that at bat alive with how she was fouling pitches off. Some of those balls were out of the zone, but she reached, fouled them off, kept the at bat alive. A great 3-2 battle between her and outside part of the plate. And she just went and grabbed it, went downstairs, elevated it, drove it the other way. A little Oppo Taco action. Big home run puts Texas A&M within one run. And the fight that Texas A&M continues to show an impressive. Now Mackenzie Herzog sends Malloy to the wall. Kiki Malloy is an exceptional athlete. And put together such a great job at the plate and then to lose it on the walk-off Grand Slam. Cannon pops out to Morgan to end the inning, but Haley Lee can hit. Chicken sandwich for doing that? He didn't, well, no, he threw it to the dugout, oh, okay. so probably not. Another one-two on the way to Pooney. Cannon. Throws across to get the first out of the third inning. Only playing that rover position in the outfield. Woolley able to get to it. A couple of ground outs to get Pooney and Gibson. It would be easy to run down the line if you put this ball down the first baseline. Ashley Morgan right into the glove of Tortoise to end the inning. Nice one, two. Dak punches it into center field. The right fielder Parsons drifts over to grab it. 
out number one. And on the base pads is a pinch hitter, Morgan, or pinch runner, pardon me, Morgan Smith is out after the nifty play by Morgan. Well, I like that Morgan ran those numbers. Production coming in a power sense. That's popped into short center and going back. Ivy Davis had to go a long way from shortstop. A nice one-two decompression yeah. for a while. Most definitely. 2-2 two -two pitch on the way now to Leach. Oh, got her. That is the sixth batter that Herzog has hit this weekend. Second tonight, and m tonight, but is not in the hitting lineup. There's Grace. No, but I think she's put out there and left knowing that she can enter the game for Herzog. Herzog can move to left as well. Eighth pitch of the at-bat, the throw down, not in time. Taylor steals the base. A&M, as the season's gone on. Ivy Davis, a shortstop. She got hit. Okay. First time on a chain, second time on a rise. That's right into the glove of Trinity Cannon, who turns the huge double play. Head uh, co-head coach Ralph Weekly wearing the mic on Miked Up Monday. Caden Baker thrown out by Ivy Davis to start things off in the and he is calling or is uh, calling her own game along with the pitcher Herzog really calling the pitches and that is beat into the ground to Boo Gibson. A couple of ground ball outs. Edmondson on a and just stuck and coach Karen Weekly calls her that as well. Coco Woolley off the glove of Boo and Woolley showing her athleticism got all the way to second. Weekly with first base open, I do the same thing. Maybe uh, she'll maybe she'll tell us something. Yeah. I mean she is mic'd up. I, I would like to know what went into that, <laughs> right? Who's more concerned with winning than they are with making sure everybody's friends? Herzog on the ground to Morgan who tags her to end the inning. Calling her own game tonight, circumventing Caradell, who usually calls pitches as the pitching coach. Butte leads things off with the single. When we always talk about needing to have a short-term memory of 11 from last year. Another 3-2 on the way. Playable for Woolley. To retire Ayala, here comes Ada Pooney. Played football at USC, and her aunt, Adrian Allo, played at Oregon State, was a softball player. That is a fair ball. And Pooney awkwardly went over first base, but was safe. We didn't think that we would be So obstruction called over at third base saying that Trinity Cannon was in the way. Talk Mess about it. it. Up. That's pounded to Cannon. The runners have to stay put. 
wide throw and Torres pulled off the bag. Gibson called safe to load the bases. Now remember, hey. Stuck with her in a cleanup position for a while, but dropped down for this game three. Hitless in the series and goes upstairs. Sixth strikeout for Herzog. Last time Kelsey Leach came up with the bases loaded, she hit a grand slam, but because the ball got away from the catcher, the bases are no longer loaded. Booped it away, now the game. Two runs ahead for Tennessee. Runners move up 60 feet, and it goes right through the legs of Ryland Wiggins. Two more runs come in to score. The A&M defense lets him down again. Sleep. And when you field a ground ball, you always have to start with the glove on the ground and go up. And you could see that she had the glove about knee high and tried to react down to the ball that didn't bounce like the previous bounce. That is a All of them unearned. 5-1 cushion. Kennedy does the job, gets Parsons to strike out to end the inning, but it's weeks. And a huge strikeout by Aaron Edmondson, a looking strikeout. Let's see again. Cracked a bone in her hand. Right on the corner, nice pitch. Same exact spot. That Over at third base that I think was incorrect. That one was incorrect. And it just all keeps mounting. Ninth pitch of the at-bat is a called strike three. Edmondson just struck out the side. And get the win. Full count, 10th pitch of the at-bat to Davis. Oh, that was a definite plunk. Now the home plate umpire, Phil Friels, walks up the line with her. And knowing that that could have, knowing what came with a ton of velocity from Kennedy. Second time that Davis has been hit tonight, first time by Kennedy, and now the bunt laid down by Malloy. And the out call comes at first. The pitch calls are coming from the dugout. Lee pops out, throws it perfectly. This tid receiver who's been playing more at first base this year. There's Ayala. Wiggins ends the inning. Stranding Davis. Keep that sense of routine, can give them the little boost that they may need to come away with one. Four straight strikeouts now for Aaron Evanson, all of them looking. And it's yesterday. Pick up the win. And the comebacker breaks the strikeout string. But she's one out away from that complete game victory. Victory, Edmondson. Go to 17 and 4 on the season. And does it in style. Struck out five of the last six batters she faced. Tennessee sweeps away Texas A&M.
First time they have done that since 2016. From the art of the deal to keeping it real. Live from the Simply Vegas studios, it's the Power Move with John Gafford. Back again. You never thought you were going to see us again. That was a two-week hiatus. And back again to spread the knowledge and the nonsense, which I think probably more nonsense than knowledge. Welcome back to the Power Move. My name is John Gafford. I am your host. To the left of me, Colt, the Cabo Cobra, Amadan. Blackout Cabo? Yeah, Blackout Cabo. There it is. Like the Bulgarian mongoose. Yeah, it's going to be hard to top (laughs) the Bulgarian mongoose. And with us, of course, always in the hot chair across is the counselor, Chris Connell. How are you, sir? Just trying to provide some advice. Trying to provide some advice, indeed. Legal or otherwise. Indeed. Now, first of all, man, if you're wondering, if you guys were like, okay, dude, I'm in. Like, I'm all in with the power move, and then you guys bail on me. What's up? It's been two weeks. I get no episode. What happened? Well, that we, you know, spring break. Spring break. We're happy. We, yeah, spring break happened. We went on a little spring bit break. of a hiatus. You, you know, it, it was my 50th birthday. So we took a little bit of a break to go do that, uh, which we'll recap that real quick because it was a pretty amazing time. It was an amazing trip. I'll say this. You know, you only turn, you know, 50 one time. Uh, I guess you only turn one birthday every time. So that's how it is. But 50, I guess, was a big deal. And, uh, and yeah, we just kind of, I went after it, and um, and there were some bumps along the way. There were some problems. There were some good times. I would say, uh, you know, first of all, I agreed to take everybody down on my private plane. Yes, I say my because I do own a private plane. For those probably while I was gone, there were some haters that were out there trying to insinuate that somehow. Now let, let me get straight. Let me, let me be very clear with everybody. Look right I mean, I can't say too much. Listen, I drafted listen, part of the agreement. Listen, <laughs> if I was gonna if I was gonna lie about possessing anything. It would be ungodly skills in the bedroom. I'd lie about that because that I think at least then it's hard to prove that you're lying. I mean, maybe my wife would know the truth. Dude, I'm not David Copperfield. I can't make a private jet appear and disappear because I just want to lie and say I got. Numbers are public records. Yeah, it's public records. Look it up. It's not hard to find. Anyway, (laughs) but. The challenge with said private jet is you make a commitment to nine people to take nine people down to uh, Cabo, and night before. Guess what happens? Oh, you're talking in the world of private aviation. Yes, private aviation. (laughs) Well, maybe you Um, can tell me as much as I know. Well, I'm sitting there and I'm looking. I'm looking at. I'm looking at the phone, right? And I'm like, because I have a little app where I can track the plane, and I'm like. Why is the why is the plane still in Memphis? Like why is it there? And I can't figure it out. And then I'm like, as soon as I start to call Jesse, who runs the plane force at Hangar Seven Aviation for all your aviation needs, if you want private jets, call Hangar Seven Aviation. Anyway, we called Jesse. Calls me, and he goes, "Hey, bro, uh, there's an avionics problem." In the, no, it wasn't avionics. It battery. was a, a battery problem, and the, the the plane is stuck in Memphis. And I'm like, what does that mean? And he was like, well, it means we're trying to find a replacement aircraft. I said, okay. Uh, and he's like, but everything out there is kind of booked. 
So I'm immediately like, you know, problem solver. So I'm, I'm staying calm. I'm using my stoicism that we preach on the show all the time. And I'm trying to be calm about it. And I'm like, all right, no problem. You know, here's what we'll do. Let's just look and we'll, we'll get backup plans for commercial. We can get everybody down there. Commercial, no problem. I look on the commercial flights and there's like nothing. Like everything, everybody's going to Cabo the next day. Um, yeah, that's you. not going to happen. Except for you. The Except for boy. me. Yeah, it's not going to Well, I couldn't get any of you guys down there. So we ended up having to bite the bullet on a, uh, a very expensive replacement that, you know, did not own the replacement, <laughs> have no interest in the replacement, got to pay to charter it just like anybody else would. And it was a big check. And, and it was, and it was, here's, here's my, now that we did it, here's my recap of that. Number one, um, I'm glad that I maintained my integrity and my promise to all of you guys to get you down there the way that we did. Thank you for that. Yeah. And then number significant it, difference. And then, the coyote taking us yeah, down and, after and, that, it worked out. And number two was the second that I got on that plane. Look, we have a private jet and it's a, and it is a, it is a pri- it's a private jet, dude. It, it is, no, no, it no, is no. a private not airplane. Not hey, a private no, no, no. Jet. The one we have, the one we have. Yeah. It's a nice plane. It is a serviceable plane. It is, you know, for those people that never flown private, it's amazing. But the plane that we wound up with to go down to Cabo, it was the damn Kardashian Fucking plane. Baller. It was just out, like, out, it, was it was out way of better. control. And the second that I we got on like it, the Kardashian. Well, yeah, the second I got on, I was like, immediately that, that cost was like, you know what? You only live once, man. Fucking eat it. So, <laughs> Once. Let me let me say two things about that whole experience. Not to throw you off the track. Yeah, go ahead. So, so first things first, private aviation is the most expensive hobby you will ever get into. Yeah. Now, John, your issue is a battery. Now, it's not like um, your car when you can just put a trickle charger on and get yeah. it going. Even if you have a good battery, it has to be signed off by an FAA certified oh, yeah. mechanic. Literally anything goes wrong, yeah. right? And you have to figure out whether it's part of the essential equipment. As a pilot, we've had to go through these things and mark which things on our plane are um, necessary and which ones you can fly without. Right. But there's certain steps you have to take, even with things you can fly without. Well, I'm guessing the, the battery probably one they had to have. Well, batteries, you know, batteries aren't that big a deal when you're flying already because your right. engines are controlled sure. by sure. magnetos. Right. But anyway, I don't want to geek out, but it just... It's just too, one of those too, things too, that too late. You're geeking <laughs> too out. Late. Too late. You're totally geeking out. <laughs> Colt, Colt, you still wait, Colt? I saw you had a cocktail lunch. I was worried uh, you're not going to make it through this. <laughs> uh, celebration was a good day today, guys. Oh yeah. What were you? What were you celebrating? Can you tell us on the air? Yeah, it's uh, just another business venture. Good. Finally, finally approved. So okay, yeah. good. There you I'm, go. Finally, yeah. We'll we'll talk about it more later. But yeah, All right. there you go. All right. Good. Colt's gonna walk and be like, oh, yeah, I'm out here. No, it's not that. You know, you got to dive. Diversify. I think Which all I three of us diversify, and we have other stuff That's that exactly people right. don't know about. That's people exactly know right. us. You real estate, me is real estate. You as attorney, but I know all three of us have different diversification. No, exactly but right. Back yes. to the plane because I got two plane things after. I want you, know, you go ahead. No, you no, go no, ahead. no, no. I like no, no. your geeking out. <laughs> all I can say is I love that uh, I could get off of a plane with no shirt and a bottle of scotch <laughs> and walk. That, that was the some. second part of it. The second part of it matter once you got on. No, John at the foresight to buy literally everybody matching tracksuits from the movie the gentleman magical it was magical. i wore that up it was magical <laughs> my favorite thing i think i, I think one of my favorite parts was the video we made oh, going yeah. down there oh. uh, and yeah colt gets off the plane uh rocking no shirt bottle of scotch 
And uh, and yes, good. Mexican uh, you know, immigration just looks at us like, okay, there's no way they have drugs because they're not even trying to <laughs> hide. Like we're not even going to bother searching these guys because there's no uh, way they, yeah, yeah, no, they would be hiding a little more of this. No uh, tienes drugos. Yeah, they're like, uh, yeah, they're like, loco. yeah. Obviously, they're all hammered, but they're not. They don't have any drugs. Oh, yeah. That's painfully it, No breakfast it, yeah. and forty-one thousand feet high. Oh and man, a bottle of scotch no, and I, a tequila shot does not mix. No, I, I I get it. So you know, we get the plane, we get to Cabo. And uh, and and the houses are, are rolling in, which is great. And um, and, and we had a great time, man. You know, we had two big houses. I had you know, my, my, we, we had been up with I think twenty seven people, twenty eight people were down uh, for this. Uh, my family was there, which was great. Uh, you know, happy to have everybody there. And then it's cool because a lot of my friend groups got to meet my other friend groups. Uh, you guys got to meet my buddies from New Orleans. They got to meet you. It was just kind of a cool vibe of what we what we did. And it was fun. And there was there were some highlight moments for sure. Uh, one of my favorite moments. We'll go through what was your favorite moments on the trip. So one of my okay. favorite moments is we do have we have a little tri- we have a little game we play when we go down there. And here's the game. <laughs> this is find probably going to make us sound like we're terrible people, we're but, assholes, yeah. but but you find the nicest person that you're with. Like literally, <laughs> you pick the, like if you have a group of of 25 people like who's the nicest guy here right and then that unfortunately the great thing if you're an asshole like yeah. us we don't get chose yeah no. you don't get chose <laughs> so, but chose. so if you're nice in here with us and you ever go to Cabo this could happen to you who's so. the nicest guy that we haven't already done this to yeah exactly so who's the nicest guy that's a good point who's the nicest guy we haven't done it to so anyway what we do is it's 24 before you, you, you wait me. about you wait about a day into it right you're about a day into the trip and then you go up to him in the pool and you're like hey man uh, what did you say to the staff <laughs> they're like what and you're like no i mean because colt who speaks spanish obviously is, is, is i'm like colt overheard the staff and they were super complaining about you man like being rude about like, you about you and they're like what what i didn't do anything and then literally you just it gets worse and worse and worse you let it just simmer and go and unfortunately where it normally cultivates is it is it dinner but because we had so many people because uh, both houses were eating from one house we did buffet style most time because last year we did this we had the oh, server like we paid the servers to not serve this person. <laughs> poor <laughs> poor it was, Scott. It was Scott, and they didn't serve. He him. walked was, around. We, oh, dude, it, tipping a yeah. hundred bucks <laughs> at each person. Saying, saying, sorry for nothing. I'm really sorry. Uh, I'm really sorry. So anyway, five hundred dollars. This year we did it to my. This year we did it to my buddy Robert Stone, uh, aka Rose which was, all which day. Was Rose all day. You know what? We're gonna do this real quick. I don't know if he's gonna answer. We're gonna try for all your insurance needs. For all your, for all your needs. We're gonna Louisiana. call him right now in the pot. Let, let's see if we can get Stone to answer. I don't know if we can get him to answer, but let's try. He's a sweetheart. It's his birthday, huh? But yeah, don't get nice to meet guy. Too Today's many sweetheart guys like So we're him. just going to call him and see if we, he'll answer and see if uh, we can wish him a happy birthday, but also, you know, tell him he's upsetting people. <laughs> stop stop <laughs> being an asshole, Stone. Yeah. Got to chill a out. Sweetheart. He's sure. a sweetheart. So what did you say to Chris Connell? What? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I'm totally not ready I can't answer. mess with them. If he answers, we're doing it. Oh, man, come on. He's a busy See? guy. This is why spontaneity doesn't work. Spontaneity is hard when you're doing a podcast. You, you plan spontaneity. Hey, this is Robert. I'm not by my phone right now. Uh, I'm just going to the message, and I'll give you a call back as soon as I can. Uh, Thank so, you. Here we go. At the tone, please record your message. When you finish recording, you may hang up or press one for more options. (laughs) Hey, Stone. Hey, Stone. What's up, man? I want to call and wish you a very happy birthday. But I also want to ask you, what did you do to Connell? Because, I mean, he was... uh, Ooh, man, he's uh, <laughs> wouldn't stop talking about it. I mean, I don't know. Anyway, cool. Hope you have a good birthday. Later. <laughs> you know, oh, sometimes a voice message is gonna just have to suffice, uh, and, and we'll go with that. But he was he was so the great thing about people that are genuinely that nice 
is they've never had that happen ever. in their life. Ever. So they just dwell on it and are Perplex. you guys sure? Is yeah. it me? Or it can't be me, right? I oh, don't yeah. know. Oh, he was for the whole day. Whole oh, day. just spun. Completely spun so over I, it. I have a thing where I particularly care about how service staff view me. Yeah. So oh, like, I, I, yeah, like yeah. if somebody said that to me, it would actually be very <laughs> yeah. upsetting to me. If that ever got around on me, I would be completely defensive. See, now I feel like it, we've blown it. You did kind of blow it. This is why I'm so cavalier. This is why I'm so cavalier about the joke. It's the one thing we could have gotten you <laughs> with. Cole is like, oh, we're a bunch of assholes. Like, no, 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 no. I would be particularly upset if I thought I'm not an asshole to staff. Put I'm out by that. Asshole no, spe- people, speaking of you baby. being an asshole, though, my, one of my oh. personal favorite Cabo moments. Uh, one of my personal favorite. Me moments. being an asshole? No, no. If, right? if Connor oh, being an asshole, okay. my personal favorite. So okay. <laughs> we're, yeah, we're at this beach. We're at this beach club down in Cabo. We're, we're at a beach club, right? And Chris decides to get a, a random foot massage from the. the it looked the, amazing. The 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 oh, roaming the roaming oh foot massage people, right? So as Chris is getting a eleven foot, out of ten, by the way. So as Chris <laughs> is getting a foot massage, right? And she's and she's into the calves. I mean, she's yeah. she's deep in there, whatever. I lean over to his wife and I go, hey, because he's got his shirt over his face so he can't he's see. Sleeping. So he's not like sleeping. He's, yeah. So I go, to, I, go over to, I go over to Caitlin, his wife, and I say, hey, why don't you run down there and sub yourself in for the masseuse and start running your hand up, up his pant leg and see how it takes him to react. And she's like, okay, cool. Gonna do it. He's going to kill yeah, us. It's going to be no, real funny. No, I, had to, I, had to, I had to talk her no, into it for a minute. It took, it took a minute. I had to ask her to go do something like that. She's like, no way. No, so she goes down there and she does it. And I'm not, I'm not going to lie. She was deep before he went to the point yeah, where she needed, started to get concerned. Get like, like, oh, like you, should, <laughs> you should totally be upset like pants six on, inches ago. Pants on. Yeah, pants on. But she was like, you should have been upset six six inches no, ago. Not now. Yeah. No. Oh, that was hilarious because it did go pretty. Yeah. She was, yeah, she was deep. I was wearing shorts, shorts, buddy. She yeah. never got past shorts. No, oh, no, 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 no. She no. Was that hand that. was uh, upper thigh oh, where you do carry in, all your stress. In my defense, I did wake up pretty startled. You did. But then she comes back and she's like, "Wait, he let that go way too, way too long." I'm <laughs> literally yeah, this supposed to be a joke, and now she's mad me. at you. Here's the thing: no. when you have assholes for friends, though, yeah. she could have literally Who's brushed that? against my knee, and I would have gotten the exact same response. <laughs> same because, oh, you let that one go oh, pretty yeah. 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 yeah, I Which stand by my reaction. Uh, yeah, uh, good reaction. Stand by my reaction. I, I would say that was a highlight. Also, unfortunately for Colt, at said beach club, it was said beach club. We have 27 people. It, it's with this, oh, yeah. whatever it was and your wife two of which That's get food me. poisoning my wife and colt get food poisoning uh, i don't know if it's a bad thing though no could be the yacht day was the next day and i felt like a skinny sexy little model <laughs> at the yacht day so i don't know but i tell you what i your wife i think was a little worse than me yeah. and i've never in my life thrown up so violently i also like, got the yeah, same which I, thing you guys all ate by the way what? But oh, I did have you? Canadian jeans. Oh, that's it. No, no. You know what so I? You know what I love? My favorite part of you throwing up. So Colt gets violently oh, yeah. ill from food poisoning. Yeah. And you know who this affected the most? You. No. no. His wife, who was oh. furious that oh. he was throwing, throwing up, up so loud. Oh yeah. I, <laughs> did you like, not know that? Oh yeah. I come she, in <laughs> and like, John's like, I've up been so up loud. all night. I'm exhausted. Poor Gidge, I think got food poisoning. I've been up getting her stuff and everything. I'm like. Me too, dude. I've been thrown up violently. I'm like, my wife comes in. Ah, fucking, I ain't getting no fucking sleep. This guy's thrown up all goddamn night. I told him to go outside and 
Oh, dude, my wife. <sighs> Marry a Mexican, they said. Marry a Mexican. Yeah, It'll be fun, they said. They'll, they'll, they'll be sympathetic to God, your... God no. bless her. God uh, bless her. But, you no, know, those are tough people, man. Yeah, and I don't yeah. have time for your bullshit. No, it was a highlight trip. I got a lot of amazing, cool stuff um from from all of my friends from guests i mean the first I, it seemed like it was a camus factory every time we had a meal bottles of camus were showing up on the table that, yeah, that just, guy it never was stopped that, that was pell bring like it two never stopped forward. it oh. never stopped with that um I, you know thanks to thanks to mr connell i am now lord john gafford i own one square meter of uh scottish land he is a lord. can we talk about those are great gifts for people i love it because you know what i mean because it's, it's, it's a story it is. like people it is. like yeah, the two months leading up to this, everybody's like, what do you get, John? What do you get, John, right? And this is an issue you have with a lot of higher-end clients or stuff. You get, you get them nonsense. nonsense. It's you, get, you get them something that's funny that they can tell a story yeah. about. Yeah, yeah. No, yeah. That's, that's, that's why I love the flamethrower. I think that's such a great gift. Yep. Yep. No, it's, I, you know, there's no, well, I mean, I could have practical use, I guess, if when the zombie apocalypse comes. But, but yeah, for the most part, that's just I'm a fun gift. I'm going sword. Is it straight sword? You don't have to that's reload good. a sword. That's a good point. Axe. You're going axe zombie apocalypse? Uh, All right. There you go. All right. Now we know. Katana. But no, but the, the gift man thing, like your star, like my sister gave me a star. So technically yeah. I could be Star Lord Gafford. Star Lord to. Gafford. Yeah. I could be, I could be, a, I could be a. Uh, like a porn. Yeah. Star. Dar Darth Gafford. That could be me. That's <laughs> how you're called. Yeah. yeah. Darth Gafford. Anyway. You could be Darth. Yeah. So anyway, Darth. but I got that. I got, um, I got, I got a bottle of, uh, I got a bottle of, of uh, Pappy. Pappy. Was dope. That was yeah. good. I got a buddy who, uh, in Canada. Reaches mm -hmm. out to me like I'm some type of bourbon broker, and is like, "Any of your friends want to buy this 23 year old pappy off me? It's how much? Five grand? Yeah, it's about right. Go and read for that bottle. Yeah, it's 51 yeah, something. In the store. I got yeah, I got I got a bottle of that when I turned 40. It's down to it's down to about two shots. I thought we came over and crushed that one. We did. We good. Did. No, we did. We did. It's down. It's down ago. to yeah, but it's down to two shots. So I got two shots of that bottle of 23 left. John, it, might, it might have been at your 40th when we were. It doing might have been. Might have been. But it's down to two yeah. shot. It's down to two shots left. And that will be a drink that I share with Hayden on his 21st birthday. Yeah, out of that boy, bottle. I like it. Because I opened that bottle with my dad, who's obviously nice. no longer with us, and that it will finish it with Hayden. That's wow. how we're doing. That's pretty cool. Yeah, and we'll go that's from there, and that's, cool. how, that's how that worked with that bottle, which is awesome. But, you know, I, again, it was an amazing trip. It, it, was, it was so much fun. Um, I was so grateful to do it. And then immediately you come back and you, you go on spring break. So I, I've been gone for like two weeks, man. I was at the beach for like two weeks, which, was, <laughs> which I got to tell you, um, I worked every day pretty much. But the thing that I, I came back and I was fine for two weeks and you can hear my voice right now. I just, it's like literally getting smashed in the face with allergies. As soon as I got back oh, to brutal, Vegas, dude. it's brutal, been, it, it has been yeah. so ruthless and so, you know, just not ending. It's, it's like, it made me want to leave for the first time ever. Like I got back, I'm like, Oh my God, I don't want to live here anymore. Cause of this. It was just, it's, it's, it's crazy. been, we were talking about that when we got back from Kabul, Scott Oof. and I, same thing. It's Oof. just. It, it, it's nuts, but I'll tell you something I did. Let's, let's let's move this along. So, something I did when I was in uh, when I was in in uh, Anaheim this time, or I was in Newport. My wife, obviously Disney fanatic. We've all talked about how much I, you know, my um, loathe my, my my anti love affair with Disney. So I thought to myself, you know, my wife's always wanted to do the VIP tour, which is awesome. Now, have I talked to you guys about VIP? I don't think I've talked to you about. You this. did. I, you briefed it yeah well but let me just put it this way let me ask you this without before we go into anything so for five g's right you give you give you give old disneyland five grand what is your expectation of the vip tour what what is your expectation cut lines i never wait again i 
I'm eating in places where, you know, I'm not going to normally be able to get to. Mm-hmm. I'm getting concierge treatment. I'm getting serviced by somebody mm-hmm. or a team. Right. I think cut lines, same thing, access to what's 19, what's a bar? Uh, no, the restaurant. 23 or whatever? 23, 23. Yeah, restaurant, which is not access good. I've been there before. No, it's, it's not, not. I've been there too, but yeah, I, I think just at least that, right? Yeah. Well, well, here is here is the truth about the Swag. Disneyland VIP pass. Now, number one, it is a, a, my buddy Josh Avon that lives down there. He and his family split it with me. So I was only into it for about 25 hundo. Um, you know, Josh picked up the other half because it's good for 10 people. Right? Still $600. It's a lot. It's a lot. So, so my, so we get there and first of all, I will say that the human being that walked us around was lovely. Like if Disney ever gets this, which I doubt they will. Um, but if, if anybody ever, the, the person, the lady, the, the girl that walked us around was great. She was awesome. She was knowledgeable. She knew a lot of cool stuff. Um, <clears throat> was pointing things out as we went through the park, which was awesome. But we, we meet, we meet her. We get going and we walk into uh, the first thing we walk up and we walk up to star tours. Right. And that's a ride that normally I would skip. I wouldn't go on that ride. Cause I mean, it just kind of, the, just kind of makes you nauseous. My kids don't, my kids don't really love it. Like we just wouldn't do it. And it just, you know, there's, there's bigger, better to deal with. Right. But I'm thinking to myself, we're on the VIP yeah. tour. We're going to ride everything anyway. Let's go. Right. And we walk up and we, we get in the fast pass lane. That's it. And we proceed to wait for like 25 minutes to ride star tours. And I'm looking at my watch and I'm looking at my wife and I'm like, is this, this is what we're doing today. And it was, and the the only place where it it had was an advantage was like Peter Pan, Snow White, those rides, which normally are like 90 minutes for little rides. You did walk right up because they don't have fast pass lines. They don't have the, the, the the lightning lines. So you would walk right up, but everything else, it was essentially just like paying, but it still takes a while, right? In the, in the fast pass lane, it still takes a while. So essentially what you're buying is a perma fast pass, which if you're slick with the fast passes, if you, you know what you're doing, it doesn't it matter. Yeah. Like I'm a, like, here's what we could have done exactly what we did for free. And here's how, all right. This is my buddy Josh's method. And I like it. I do like it. But hold on. Before you start putting yeah. this out there. Do we want everybody to know Do you really this? want this? Do you really want to say the name of your favorite restaurant and have it blow up? Do you really? Uh, you know, here's the, here's the thing. Or we don't talk here, about here's the, here's the, here's the thing. Here's, here's the thing. This, this is a, I'm saying this is a specific situation you would have to be in to make this work. Because okay. right? right. anybody can get the genie pass, get the fast pass, right? So here's what you do. Like, for example, we went with another family. So we have two families, Right. They get, a, they get a fast pass, we get a fast pass. So you gotta spend most of the day apart, but you're like, okay, you go do, you get a fast pass for Space Mountain, we're gonna get one for Buzz Lightyear. Then when they go here, you go there, then you walk up and you're like, oh, we need a rider swap. And if they go, where's your baby? You just turn and point at anybody with a baby. That's what he does. He just literally goes, oh, there's my baby right there. They're like, I'm sorry, sir, that's a 60-year-old woman. It's like, oh, no, no, it's a baby. He just looks like he's a Because they don't, they don't question. So he just gets the rider swap, and then they come off of this ride. You come off of this ride. You swap the rider swaps, and you go again, which the rider swap has been a ray of life for us because my daughter forever wouldn't ride everything, so we did do a lot. I mean, the rider swap is just part of what it is for us and he's got two little kids too so literally we just would have done that we could have got the same experience can we so can we we honestly cut to the chase and say that disney does not hold a candle to six flags anyway no not for not for rides but but just not not at all worth not at all at all worth that's disappointing i assume you're going to come back and say no 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 other way to do it on earth nope i I would it was a waste of money i would never do it again um Mm. it, it did not save me 
one second of time really oh that it's, sucks because you're just standing in the fast pass line and now that, you gotta bullshit and talk to the girl random yeah girl. there's oh, well they do they do man. have like an uber choice where they're like do you want them to interact with you and talk a lot of these want them to kind of stand there and do nothing so have you been to um universal studios i have so you know you buy that vip yes pass? which is totally worth it it's totally worth it totally you crush worth it. the lines yes. and you could fly through that park yes. all day i love they, that they started saying oh you only get to use it once per ride what yeah really that killed it for me too because it's yeah. like well, now you're paying double, double to one time get a fast pass effectively to the front yeah. of the ride. The whole point of the mummy is I want to do it ten times. And I don't want to yeah. wait for it. Well, you know, they've, they, there's all these loopholes they've closed at Disney because people used to buy multiple tickets and go in mm-hmm. and and just do multiple fast passes. That was the point. You would go in with an extra ticket because people were like, I mean, literally, because think about it, you could buy an extra day, you know, day pass to get multiple fast passes like they were, and it'd be cheaper than paying them for the VIP tour. Yeah, the VIP tour doesn't sound like a lot of value. No. Let me ask you this. Here's an, here's an intro. We're going to bring this up. This is going to be a touchy subject. I'm bringing it up. Because I got, I, got I got in a philosophical discussion with this. Now, first of all, I believe that if you park in a handicapped space and you're not handicapped, there's a special place in hell for you. Sure. I believe that. Okay. Here's the debate. Because they had this service, and this service has now been shut down at Disney, where you could actually, there was ads running, where you could get a... This is so terrible, but I'm curious what you think. I feel like I already you, have an opinion. No, you can, <laughs> I feel yeah, like I'm no, take no, this. no, 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 no. Where you could Quiet. you could pay someone with a genuine handicap and their and their their uh, their companion, whoever was with them, you could pay them to go with you to Disneyland, so you could be in their party and go through the handicap. Exit. Totally fine. Okay. So you think that's okay? Totally fine. Yeah, because my bu- my buddy well, was like, "No, this is like a, it's like I'm taking them to Disneyland. I'm, I'm not, taking these people. I'm not to putting them to work in a sweatshop. Yes, I'm I am definitely benefiting from this handicap, but that's their ability. So, by whatever grace happened to them, by accident, by birth, whatever, they've had certain things either taken away from them or they've never had. Right? Uh-huh. The fact that they can capitalize on them hey, should man. be like capitalize. something you should want to do. Oh no, for sure. I, I, why? I, it's like I thought you were going to say they'll rent you a wheelchair. No, God, that, that, that's no, that, no, that's te- no, that's. But terrible. hiring a handicapped person yeah. is and their, the most and their Larry companion. David thing ever. And their companion. I just oh, think it's, it's yeah. wonderful. It's a complete Larry David. <laughs> I think thing it's to do. wonderful. Yeah, they banned that. They don't want you to do. That. I guess you, you get. I don't know what they do if they catch but, you doing or how yeah. they would catch you. Larry doing David it. hired a prostitute to sit in his car to take the HOV <laughs> lane to go to a Dodgers game. I forgot. That was a great one. It's a yeah, service. You're, you're getting her off the, the street. Game. And you're getting off the street. street. Oh, it's speaking of baseball, <laughs> this is. Gonna, what do you got? With, what, what are you going to, John? What's your? I mean, Hold do on. you have any pushback on that? Oh, I, yeah. No, I guess I, I guess I. Because here's the thing: if I'm with my, Chris my, on that my one. visceral gut reaction was this is a terrible thing. Yeah, but, I mean, I, yeah, but it's like uh, okay, I don't want to get in any kind of weeds here. But there's a lot of people that I was watching comedians talking, and this person was like, "You're a racist." This comedian was getting yelled shout for. He goes. What did I say about any race? He said, <laughs> I said that this is a thing. He goes, that had nothing to do. I said something like, I do this because I'm Filipino, was the joke. Yeah. It was like, where did I say that that was bad? Are or- you, let me ask you, that brings us to another question. Are, are, you, feeling, are you feeling the pendulum starting to swing back on the wokeness? Of course. Finally. 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 Feel I it mean, swinging hard back. It, it, to, to, it was always going that, to. Yeah. Hopefully, it stops in in, in a realm middle. of, of yeah. stop in the reasonableness. Stop. But there you go. But I mean, it hopefully, it does. But, but yeah, it but won't. people all of a sudden they go to a point where, you know, like I said, I think there's a lot of people with good intentions. Yeah. And I'm I'm somebody that I don't think race should ever be a factor in deciding anything. 
But this is going to, I was having this story. I have, you know, very multicultural friends. And it's a lot of fun when your friends and you bullshit together about like even stereotypes with each other, mm. right? Like they're breaking my balls for being an uncoordinated white guy. Yeah. And it's like, that's your friend. Right, now, I wouldn't right, want, right. I, I wouldn't th look on it too kindly if other people were doing it. I didn't know them. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> or, or, or I, I wouldn't really care, but I'm saying if it's your friend, that's a part of the spice of life, right? Is difference. Mm. Difference that's is a lot of fun. No, that's what makes everything when you have good, good. When you have different good intentions, cultures, when you have good intentions, yeah, difference yeah. is awesome. Yeah. Good intentions. You know what has bad intentions? Baseball. Oh. And you know why baseball has why, why, bad why, intentions? Good. Take, take us, Colt. Why does baseball have bad intentions? <laughs> Do you have something important to say? Because <sighs> No, go ahead. Not, go ahead. Fuck. Worst <laughs> first pitch fucking Who ever was done. It? Was Ooh. it the girl with the lacrosse stick? No. Wait, what? It was Tom... Fucking Hanks. Oh, what a legend. Oh, Tom Hanks. Wow, guys. No one saw him throw first pitch? Was no. it a strike? Or did he just... Your buddy Pell sent it to me. The, o the only first pitch I saw. <laughs> oh, the, no. The only okay, thing... so Tom, go ahead. With no, the... keep going. Keep... I didn't mean to oh, cut you I, just God, thought, I thought it was so going to be a general over... no, Tom, no. Hanks, Tom Hanks rant. I didn't know there was a So this weekend, he goes out. And, of course, Tom Hanks going overboard on what Tom Hanks does. Instead of walking out, waving, and throwing a freaking pitch, he brings out Wilson. Wilson. Yes. How <laughs> lame. Like, bring out the worst character ever made, and then he sits there and the wind's blowing the ball away, and Tom Hanks is acting like he's stuck on a desert island. John, you know why he thinks Wilson's oh, the worst character gosh. ever made? Because he doesn't watch Star Wars and never saw Jar Jar Binks. That's a good point. That's an excellent point. I spent this week. movie. I made. spent this week in the hot tub, literally <laughs> doing you. doing this this character versus this character from best to worst with my son. Because oh. right now he's playing a lot of uh, Star Throw Wars out. Legos on Wilson. whatever on uh, on Xbox or whatever it is. So now he's into the Star Wars movies again. And literally, and the thing is, on the worst, you always want to go right to Jar Jar Binks. But there's nobody worse. It's not. It's not close. So you just can't even compare it. There's yeah. just nobody worse. Jar Jar what? Never mind, Cole. It's, it's, it's a lot. <laughs> no, it's a lot. seriously. Don't What's the, a, how do you say it again? So Jar Jar Binks. Binks? Yes, yes. So, funny, so Jar Jar is I'll put it like, When we finally get around to <laughs> hey, saying Jar you are the Jar Jar Senior. Binks of this podcast, just understand it's not, <laughs> just know it's it's not, not a compliment. Good. Yeah, it's not good. Uh, anyway. But no, the, the first pitch I saw that was terrible, well, not terrible, but I saw Billy Crystal, I guess, throwing out the first pitch like at Crystal. New York. And he was kind of jerking around with it, I guess, and take it forever. And the starter for the Mets was furious in the dugout. Out yelling, like, him like, let's fucking go, man. Because really? like, he was that's what they should have no, because he was Tom warm Hanks. and he had yeah. to go. Yeah. And now Billy Crystal's doing side stick up there on the so mound. <laughs> and this guy's <laughs> like, we gotta go, man. I saw that and I was like, Is yeah. City Slickers, one of the best movies ever oh, made. Boy. It's funny, oh, it, Billy man. Crystal's Great. immune from your criticism, but Tom yeah. Hanks catches it. Oh. Tom Hanks catches it. Oh, really good. did you see? Dude, he was out there for like 10 minutes playing this, oh, Wilson, come back. Uh, uh, Tom Hanks, get over yourself, Tom, Tom Hanks. Tom Hanks, get over for yourself. sure, for sure. Well, when we come back, we're going to take a quick That's break. That's why COVID's coming back around we, again. We still have stuff to unpack that was happening in the last two weeks, which is good. We're going to talk a little bit about the Airplane Jesus music. We're going to talk about confirmation bias. We're going to talk about, you know, I, might, I got a big speaking gig coming up this weekend. And because of it, I went back and reviewed some Robert Kiyosaki books because I'm actually speaking with him this week. And I wanted to kind of, you know, have some stuff to talk to him about. Sure. So I you know, read his books again. And uh, I'll tell you what I agree with, what I don't right now. We'll come back in just a minute. Hey, it's John Gafford. If you want to catch up more and see what we're doing, you can always go to thejohngafford.com. 
Well, we'll share any links that we've things we talked about on the show, as well as links to the YouTube where you can watch us live. And if you want to catch up with me on Instagram, you can always follow me at the John Gafford. I'm here. Give me a shout. Back from the break. Back from the break for part two of today's episode. Are back from uh, sabbatical. But I guess I guess we're going to say what it is. You know, whatever. Warm up episode. Warm up episode. Back from that. Uh, you know, honestly, if you're still listening after the cold couch episode. Uh, personally thank you very much Con- no one. yeah we did is connell least- connell told me when he walked in today he goes man i tried to watch it but when he started talking <laughs> about when he started reading text off his phone <laughs> i was uh it was hard it was hard it was hard did we leave people two weeks with that i yeah. think we wow. did i think we did here's the funny part here's the funny part is so the funny part is after that and nothing shows up for two weeks and now all of their podcast apps went bloop, and they look at it, they're like <laughs> oh my god am i going down this am i going down this hole again Don't so if we re- so allow us to regain trust with this episode which is great but i'll tell you what i got it you know so this big event is here in vegas this weekend on friday what's it called john it is called the clever summit i'm actually going to put this out you know we're done i'm probably gonna put this out today just because this is your last chance today to actually buy tickets so you can't buy in-person tickets anymore they sold out in like two seconds wow. there's 500 people trying to get in-person tickets on a waiting list they're all no way uh the virtual tickets are now over like five thousand sold so this is gonna be like seven seven seventy five hundred people at this event it's pretty dope it's awesome. um awesome and i happen to be speaking there which is really really cool and um you tell your last chance to get virtual tickets so check that out. you might want to look if you want to audit in look at the people there it's going to be an amazing event this this weekend but i got an interesting dm uh that i thought was it was it was interesting which was this and it was somebody said uh sent me a dm and it was a local agent here in vegas that said Man, you know, I wish you were still doing uh, local stuff. I wish you weren't just talking at these national things because I miss seeing you talk about local real estate stuff. And, you know, you should do that again is essentially the message I got. And my response was, that ain't my fault. (laughs) Like, here's the the thing. Here's the thing you got to understand. Years ago, and and again, a a big part of this company, uh, Simply Vegas that we're at, was built because of these things. But all of the different title companies and mortgage companies would invite me to talk at their events. They would do that. And almost all of those events, those realtor events, are hosted, sponsored, put on, brought by by title and mortgage companies. They almost all are. Um, We are now, since I was doing those events, we are obviously knee-deep in the title and mortgage business. We own both title businesses and we own mortgage businesses. So, I, you know, I don't blame those companies for not inviting me to talk to their crowds because it would essentially be like me inviting a competitor to come and talk sure. to my people. And, I, and so but I you get probably that. would though. What, go talk to them? Well, you would, so that's the one thing I, I never understood about people's per- perspectives in business, right? I, I know some attorneys that like won't add me on Facebook and I'm not just talking about Nick Dosa. I mean like other attorneys. <laughs> <laughs> Nick, please, for the love of God, I got to hear about this. And I'm, you know, for those of you who don't know, Nick Dosa owns Vegas auto gallery friend to everyone except for Chris Connell. Chris um, Connell. Great guy. <laughs> anyway, anyway, who actually told me cause he's working on the Moz right now. He told me I can come down there and get whatever I want. Why have you not done that yet? But regardless, I, regardless. well, because I don't know how long it's going to take the Mazda to fix. <laughs> Doesn't but matter. I'm going to go. I'm going to go down there. I'm going to go down there tomorrow. I think if it's not done, we're I'm going after this podcast. I'm going to grab something. W. I'm grab something tomorrow. <laughs> anyway. No, I totally forget what I was right. saying. But you were talking about other attorneys but, won't but, add you because they're they're scared. But of you shouldn't. If you're ever afraid of someone coming and taking your business, they could have taken it anyway, right? It doesn't matter. I I, I really believe that. Like if you got somebody here, uh, if you got Ivan Shear to come and do a yeah, talk, which Ivan would, Simply Vegas, yeah. 
Do you feel which we like, have? But are which you, we have. You, are you so protectionist? You think, oh my god, my agents are going to run over there, or do no. people go, oh no, no? I just see that as someone else yeah. doing something in town. Well, you know what I mean. Like if you if you water your own backyard, right? That includes getting right. others' perspectives. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I think I think one of the things I posted this week because again I got blown up about you know somebody talking smack about me and I didn't see it because I don't follow that person. But you know my response, you know I, I let it simmer for a couple of days, and my response was this: is is you know if you can't tout an accomplishment if you if you have to like try to tear somebody else's accomplishments down in order to make yours look bigger then you're not you're not a leader you're a hater right like you want to be like you attack i try to i try to i try to surround myself in my in my golden years as i'm calling them now with with people that want to see me win right because everybody that's around me, even if they're in, if they own a competitive business, I want to see them win. Sure. I mean, there's never going to be a time where there's going to be one title right. company and right. one real estate company and one mortgage company. If if right. you own a mortgage company, I want to see you win. If you own a title company, I want to see you win. You own a brokerage, I want to see you win. Of course. I, I, yeah. You know, you do something great. I'm not jealous of what you did. I don't hate on what you did. If I mean, for example, for example. Um, Brandon Roberts, who I consider a friend of mine, owns Signature Real Estate here in Las Vegas, put an ad out, and, and I appreciate quirky good advertising. And he put an ad up for Easter that had, had peeps, and it just said, Signature Real Estate, great peeps. That's cool. And I was like, ah, and I just, and I hit right in the comments, man. Oh, that's awesome. Right sure, on Facebook. Because well, yeah. I thought it was clever. I'm going to give him, you know, I'm going to give you some compliments. I'm not worried my agents are going to see the peep ad and run out of here and go to him. Because yeah, how shitty it. is your business? Yeah, that's yeah, like, well, right. But, but if yeah. I see something clever and good, I'm, 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 I'm going to call Spade Spade. It's yeah. awesome. Yeah, that's good. Sure. Anyway, um, but, but so, but here's the, here's the, here's the goocher. Here's the Gucci. <laughs> this is the Gucci. This is it. This this four tails. Yes, this is <laughs> four. Let, let me have, let's have a hypothetical conversation without nailing down specifics on the air. Gucci. All right. Here's the go. Here, I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna run this down. Ready? Let's say there's a there's a business model, and half of the business model services independent companies that sell this widget. We'll call it a widget. Okay. All right. And then the other half of that business model services brick and mortar stores owned by widget company that sell widgets right out of the widget store. Totally understand. All right. Got it. Mm -hmm. Now let's say that one of the people that opens their own independent widget store that sells widgets starts kicking the ass of the brick and mortar widget stores. Right? So all of a sudden the widget store decides to try to impede the business of the agency by saying, Hey, we're going to let you keep selling out of your one widget store but you can't open any more widget stores. We're not going to let you sell widgets out of any of those. Essentially, so one of my widget partners on Friday tried to pull the rug out from underneath me because we're selling a lot of widgets. <laughs> so that's an interesting thing, but that is actually, I think, illegal. I I, I, I think in, it is. In a lot of ways. Now, I, now, you're not obviously compelled to have to do business with certain people. Right. right. But if you make it, like, there's certain conditional things. Well, right? I'm, so, I'm sorry. Let, let's say that this particular widget company sells widgets all over the United States, right? All yeah. over the United States. And they allow independent widget shops to sell widgets in every 50 states. And there's one state where they are stopping to have let independent widget companies operate, and it's this one. <laughs> So there is something about an anti-competition, right? And there is something with intentional interference with business relations that is a tort in Nevada. Yeah. Intentional interference with. So when you are so, I, I mean, that seems very short-sighted. <laughs> you think? And, and it does seem 
possibly actionable. You I'd think? have to obviously have detail. Well, there, I'm, tr- I'm, try- I'm trying to get a, a meeting with the president of the widget company say, <laughs> who made this decision. Um, because obviously the person that, that we deal with in, in the, in the widget department, um, it's in their best interest that we sell as many as widgets as we can. Sure. Um, so it's their boss that made this widget decision because I'm thinking that some people that work at the brick and mortar widget store, uh, are feeling the heat a little bit. Yeah. But that there is yeah. an issue with price fixing or there's an issue with, you know, competition, Competition. Yeah. but, but a lot of times you will get those, um, yeah. companies that that see it in their best interest to not do that so uh, sure it, but the, the good news is is i there's a lot of companies that sell widgets this yeah. is I, about I, yeah. I, it's not hard for me to find another widget supplier it's not hard to do it john you it's, can just say the company it's because there's a lot of companies that will sell you six cadillac margaritas <laughs> that aren't chili. not you chilies <laughs> look, no, look, i'm not gonna be i will never name the name of a company and complain about it but you chilies i will you sold me six cadillac margaritas you tow my car chilies for trying to be responsible and still still no response still no response oh, i was right it. next to that no, chilies ridiculous. i forgot yeah, Should have gone up there. Anyway, were you not? I was last <laughs> week. I was oh seriously maybe a half a mile. Colt, from next that time show, you go to Chili's. Utah, we're going to do a live mm-hmm. remote from this for the podcast where you interview the manager of Chili's about oh, their about their towing procedures. John, I, I actually want to hear what you have to say about that next thing you were talking about. Which thing is that? About singing. Singing. Oh, oh, yeah. Well, we're, we're almost there. Okay, we're almost okay, there. Okay. We're, we're almost there. Because I look, it, I'm complaining about stuff. If I don't want to derail you. No, no. If <laughs> I'm going to if I'm going to complain, I got one more. I got one more. My whole house, and again, here comes another Star Wars reference that Colt won't understand. My whole house this weekend went down like the Death Star, <laughs> just like that. Why? Because my home automation company that I have 92 switches and devices programmed through their hub decided to go out of business and just turn their servers off and didn't tell anybody really? it was coming. Nothing. Oh, wow. Yeah. And all of a sudden I'm like, they didn't get bought out or anything. Huh? They got, but it's instant on. They got bought by Nokia and Nokia is going to move, I guess people over there to whatever they're doing, but they just literally Death started you up. shut everything down. So your force field. And so went now, down? Yeah, yeah. So, so now, your house is not, penetrable. Well, not, well no, no. <laughs> the alarm thing got us. No, everything still functions, but it doesn't work together. And now it's, you know, and yeah, it's like, I have a lot of switches that you like, like for example, like you look at my kitchen, all of the cans over here are on one switch, all the cans over here on the switch, all of the, the, the lights underneath the cabinets are on one switch, the chandeliers are on one switch. So before, because it was programmed, I could push one thing and they would all come on. Now, if I want them on, I have to go to each switch and turn them all on. So I oh, spent, I spent, welcome to the poor side. Yeah, wow. I, 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 just, just, just <laughs> I spent the weekend investing, trying to figure a solution for this. I've got something that came today. I'm praying to God it works, but it, I'll be spending all of next weekend, not this weekend because I have that event, but the following weekend reprogramming my house because you got to do it one switch at a time, apparently. So hopefully it's going to work. Wow, but dude, yeah. I, I could not believe that this company just. I mean, nuts. I mean, you think you would like open you source that, you a solution? A bad... Like, yeah, I mean, open source a solution. Do something. If you know you're going to business, you're going to shut down. It would cost. It doesn't matter. It would cost. Yeah. You I think mean, it's their issue or the people that bottoms issue? I, well, I mean, at the same I think time. You take on the liabilities of your prior. But where's the contract, but where but where's the moral responsibility for the people in management that are? You think that extends to moral responsibility? I think it does. I think I think if you took money in exchange for a product or service, I think you know, I think people think there's this imaginary line where you just become a big corporation, it becomes okay. I don't believe that. If if I take money from you to provide you with a service and I disappear, I'm a scumbag and you ruin my reputation sure. around town. 
Yeah, a lot of people. If Nokia does it, it's just well, it was a corporate buyout, and it was just a lot like, of creditors in bankruptcy just, court feel the exact same way. Yeah. You do, you know. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly right. So, I guess the moral of the story with that is, if you were going to go out on a limb and, and shut your business down, give your customers a heads up. I mean, make sure there's a solution in place. Try to transition. Yeah, do that. Right that's thing. good corporate governance and responsibility. Yeah, do, but here's the, the right thing: time. when you're going out of business, what do you care? Yeah, it's. I mean, I get it. Mm-hmm. So, by the way, just, well, just I don't get it. Just as a point, it. by the way, when someone does file a bankruptcy, there's a thing called a 341 hearing. Mm-hmm. And a 341 hearing, all creditors get to come to the room where the trustee is with this person and ask them whatever questions you want. Oh boy! If you've never seen one of these things, I've seen some things personally in a 341 hearing that would blow your mind. Just absolutely, just blazing just, people, like blazing people. <laughs> oh, so why didn't you give me my money that you've stolen? Like. All these things, oh, right? Boy. But I had one situation where this guy goes, well, I had to pay my staff with your money because it's like you have to pay people to come to work, right? Yeah. Because but you know that was our money, right? It's like, yeah, but you got paid to be here, so why shouldn't my staff have gotten paid with your money? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> still some, odd, some, odd, some odd justifications probably happen in those things. But you know, I saw this. I do want to talk about this today before we get into talking about some of uh, Kiyosaki's philosophies for the weekend. But I saw this, and I thought it was interesting, which was the airplane Jesus. Um, that's what I'm calling it. Uh, it was a thing that I guess there was a bunch of church kids or group or whatever it was jumped up on an airplane and started singing and playing guitars and, and singing hymnals. And, uh, I know that, uh, oh, what's her name? The uh, Talib, the, 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 the representative from, um, Michigan. Oh, yeah. What's her name? Oh, I, uh, oh, um, oh, whatever her name is. Anyway, yeah, we, we, okay. Yeah, but, uh, She's part of Use the Google group. machine if you're at home. You'll figure it out. Anyway, she's she's Muslim, and she said, "Oh, I guess me and my family should have a prayer, you know, yeah. prayer meeting on on the plane. Let's see how that goes over." Right. Right. So here's my thing. All right. Now, obviously, she's I, absolutely correct. By the way, I, I agree. Yeah. I, I I agree. I, my my thing is, if I'm on a plane, like I can't listen to my phone without headphones. How are you going to get up and do a jig? I don't care. Let's do a, any, no matter what it is. But this problem, I don't think we need to debate that. Is there any debate here that that's just lunacy? No matter what people are doing that are interrupting you. It's always lunacy if what you are listening to ever or your kids yeah. is audible to the next family over. Okay, got it. Okay, how got people it. walk around with their phone yes, on yes. speaker. Got it. Oh, got it. So okay, annoying. got it. So, so that we're in complete agreement that totally. it doesn't matter. Now, are we also in agreement? There's probably a line somewhere where you're like, oh my God, Mick Jagger just grabbed the damn speaker thing from the flight attendant and he's giving us a little, you know, a little gimme shelter up there with, you know, it might be awesome. annoyed by that. Yeah. I might be annoyed by it. <laughs> no, but if it's, but it's, but how famous do you got to be where it's okay? To get up on the plane and do it like because I don't. Think I remember because no, no. Here's the thing. Like I remember a long time ago, my buddies in Beth and Ezra. I remember seeing where they were where Kevin was on there playing guitar and singing. They were singing good to the passengers. I remember that, and they seemed to like it. But some people might not know who they are. So how famous do you gotta be where it's okay for everybody? Probably Ezra would be on the other side of that line, which is good. Yeah. Right. Like. If you what? don't know that song, really? You yeah, Kevin is good. So I think there would be 50% plus one. I think you have to go by consensus. All right. Would 50% plus one okay. enjoy this experience? And how long and how, if it's. If yeah, it, a solid one minute is all you A couple got. minutes you're singing. One minute you're good. And then people go, what the hell was that? Add a little flavor to people's lives. Yeah. I'm all for that. Okay. Add a little fear and danger in there, right? Yeah. Get up and start yelling like 
really harsh verses from the Quran. I think that's also Dude. <laughs> okay. Well, can, no, can I, well, no, can, no, 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 no. Can I tell you? That was one of the scariest moments of my life. Me and Gidget went to Europe, and this was probably, this was, call it 16 years ago. So that would have made it what? 2004, I guess we're going to call it. Yeah. No, we'll call it 2006. Six. All right. We'll call it 2006. We went to, uh, went to Europe and we were in London on the tube and there had been a bombing on the mm -hmm. tube like two weeks before we got sure. there. Yeah. We get off we, we're on Gloucester station. We get on the tube and, uh, and there's a dude, a solo guy on the tube with us that does exactly that. And I gotta tell you, it was terrifying because you're like this guy. And obviously he's just a dude that was touched. I mean, just happened to be, you know, like some right. guys walk around, how much shit about themselves about nothing. This, alligator brain. Exactly. <laughs> this dude just happened to actually be reciting something in Arabic very loud. And dude, and you've it's never terrible. seen people run off a train faster than that. My, my poor wife, I did take her to Morocco one time. And it's about dark. It's getting dark. I don't know what time it is. Five, six, seven, dinner time. All of a sudden, the Findamon, the, the mosque at the end of the road in Morocco, starts yelling out the call to prayer. Yeah. Now, if you've never heard it, it's disconcerting because we only get the influences from media, right? Sure. That typically, it's followed by something blowing up, right? In our media. Sure. That's how it's right. presented. Movies. Meanwhile, it's well, okay. Then it's like let, a, me, a, let me back up before I get before, chiming. Let me back up before I get labeled as something with this. No, no, no. Yeah, yeah. When I see a lone guy that starts screaming anything, sure. Oh, <laughs> okay. That was fifty percent of the experience. Totally. The fact right, that right. yeah. So let's be very clear. It's not like no, no. I'm not. Be, I'm not being the next door of podcast. Like, oh my god, did you see this? weird man in the neighborhood i was oh. terrified of him that's <laughs> no. all i'm trying to No, this was no, legit but, but if but here's the thing this is why travel is so important mm -hmm. because if you've never seen that yeah you, you're not gonna understand yeah. but then when you go see it you go, oh i get it. so me Beautiful myself thing, i've yeah. been to half a dozen muslim countries now i just go oh it must be 5 p.m it's just like a yeah. chi town square right. chime going off right that's the value of experience because it's, it's less scary when you have context mm -hmm. yeah but anyway, that was well. No, no anybody but, on a tube screaming but again, about. But again, yeah, literally anything. A little, is not little fun. scary. But but again, that comes back to confirmation bias. You look for things to justify your opinion. Which I, man, I just I I feel like everything I ever post on social media from now on, I want to include. Uh, like confirmation bias. People need to learn this because there's way too many people on both sides of any issue that devoutly believe what comes out of someone's mouth sure. and you can look on social media. It's so funny. Even some people that I know, man, you'll see like, you'll see like one of the top guru guys come on and rant about something. And within 10 minutes, oh, I'll yeah. see somebody else that I know rant the same shit. Cause they heard this person say it and they said, Oh, I need to go rant that same Absolutely. shit. And it's, and it's nonsense. And I think, you know, being able to look at in, in any type of information, especially if it's something you're gonna you're gonna you're gonna repeat or put out there, you gotta look for that counterpoint. I mean, the question, like, where do you get your news? Here's a question: Where do you get your news, Colin? I think I get them from a couple sources. I don't like subscribe to the Wall Street Journal anymore, okay? Because I just found that slogging through it wasn't too yeah, it's, organic. It's, it's cumbersome. I do probably find it most through social online. Media online, right? where do you get your yeah. news? Online, Twitter. Um, a little bit of Twitter. Which we can talk about that. Jesus Christ. Like, I, but I follow, yeah, like, I'll follow the AP. Yeah, I'll follow yeah. okay. AP, BBC. But, here's, here, the, yeah. so, but yeah. here's, here's the thing. I have, I have my same routine, which is this. Just because not only do I want to try to figure out what's going on, but I also want to figure out what's going on in the minds of people I'm probably going to have to talk to or interact with at some point, mm -hmm. which to me is more valuable than the information itself. I kind of want to have an idea of what people are thinking. Sure. <laughs> so I hit CNN, 
I hit Fox News. I hit BBC. I hit MSNBC. I hit all of Sky them. News. I hit all of them. Yeah. I look at news. Newsmax. I look at all of them because I figure if I get a nice blend of the mania from every direction where it comes, somewhere in the middle of that, if I find enough common thread through all of these stories, okay, that's probably going to be true, <laughs> and I can yeah. decipher that. So, so I don't want to be completely um, nihilistic about that opinion. Mm, Go ahead. But here's the thing. I talk to my dad about this all the time. And my dad through the years has become, I mean, like left of Bernie. Like oh we were growing up probably pretty central issues like property taxes and like, you know, but the older he gets. Do you think that has to do with his overall disappointment in you? No, no, <laughs> I don't think so. Cause then I can fix that. There you are. No problem. <laughs> he just, he, he's just become left on some issues so strongly because he, kind of feeds into this now a lot of it, things i will agree with some i don't i push back where i don't because yeah. i do try to think independently but um you, you do start feeding into this and i always say to him dad you realize that this news company that's giving you the news has no um its objective isn't to inform you it's objective is to make keep money. you here keep you yeah keep here it's objective Business. is to make money its objective is to make money all the news you've ever received in your whole life comes from a perspective of a company Trying that to pays money. somebody yeah. to make money. So it, it's it's if you, in statistics and in math, you see these things, right? In Nicholas uh, Hasim Taleb's Black Swan. I don't know if it was going to get there. <laughs> I got it. I wouldn't have got the So in the book, The Black Swan, there's this concept, right? All swans were white uh -huh. until there, there was. was a black swan. Yeah. Or 500 days of a chicken's life. 499 days of it, the chicken just sees a farmer feeding it. Mm. It assumes after 499 instances that it, the farmer's its best friend. Mm. And the 500th day, it chops its head off, right? right? So all of these things, we get yeah, our girls news. like that. We get our news. We get our news. We get our news. <laughs> you have to, I think, broaden that so far to get what would approximate truth that I'm not sure that by going at a local level, it's ever going to happen. And I, I don't even mean that from an AP. I think they have these, they try to be as objective as possible. Yeah. But you talk to people that were there versus how the news presented, oh, sure. even unbiased. And it well, doesn't necessarily money. approximate truth. Oh, because sure. again, every time, and consider this, and John, that's to your point. Every single time you turn on anything, realize that you are a product, oh, yeah. right? That you are consuming a product, mm. that, it, that you are the um, inventory. Sure. For you're, this company, you're the so, data. You're the data you know, point. That's yeah, you're it. the data point. You're the inventory. They the need you to be consuming their product in order for this to make them money, sure. right? So, just at the end of the day, I go, you know, Dad, you realize that this company, its objective is not to present you the truth. Mm -hmm. Its objective is to give you a message that you're inclined to hear. And the more you're inclined to hear the same message, the more you'll think like that. Well, I th you know, again, you know, confirmation bias for me is people spend so much time looking for opportunities to justify their own belief system yes. instead of looking for counters to it instead of looking for other ways for other things. And, and it's so interesting with this thing I'm doing this weekend, you know, you've got guys that are, that are coming to this and it's going to be a flood of the who's who of how to make money in and around real estate. I mean, mm -hmm. you've expanded some of the crypto and NFT stuff now, but you're going to have basically every 15, 20 minutes, a new guy or new gal get on stage and say, this is the way. <laughs> this is the way, this is the way, this is the way. And every single one of those opinions is going to differ from the guy that was just there. The girl's coming on after you. I mean, there's some, there's some right. underlying pinning theme themes that go there, right. but overall you got to look for, for biases in it. And I think again, cause Kiyosaki is going to be there. I went back and I looked through some of his books and a couple things. And I was like, who would be the counterpoint to a lot of what Kiyosaki does? 
Like who would you guess? Who would you guess? I selected as the as the Kiyosaki counterpoint. Who would you the guess? Kiyosaki counterpoint to me would be like. You mean industry specific or just in general? In, in general, in general, whose theories are altered most with his? It would be like Jim Chanos of Kinecos Capital. Uh, perma, no, 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 no. Perma no. Bear. I'm, I'm talking about somebody that is in the space, in the space of telling you in what you need space. to do with your money. That it, a lot of his That's opinions right. hardcore differ. No, nah, I'm not going to say grand. I'll, 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 we're not going to play guessing games anymore. <laughs> it is. Uh, it's Dave Ramsey. Okay. Who yeah. has a lot of polar opposite yeah. views in things that than Kiyosaki does. Primarily where they differ in the line in the sand is is debt. Like yep. Dave Ramsey will tell you debt is the devil and you should never be into debt and don't be into mm. debt and this mm. and that and pay for your cash, pay for your house with cash and all these other things. And you know, I, as I read that and I'm thinking how many people in America take advice from Dave Ramsey and how many people listen to Kiyosaki? Kiyosaki is debt as a weapon. You know, you use debt, you use debt to buy assets that make more money and use it as a weapon. Now, like a weapon as well, debt, debt has to be handled carefully because it mm -hmm. can cut you. Is that up for debate? What debt? Oh, yes, Ramsey says Ramsey. debt, debt I is. Didn't know. Oh yeah, Dave I didn't Ramsey know says, much about Ramsey, but they're at my kids' at school. They really oh, yeah. preach Ramsey stuff. Le I'm like, like no, no debt, no, no, no debt, leverage. state leverage. Oh, no debt. You mean no, no debt. debt. Credit no debt. cards. Buy your house no. with cash if you can. No credit cards. He, no, Dave Ramsey will come on and economic. say, yeah. Dave Ramsey will come on and say, Shocks the hell no me. credit cards, debit cards only. You only need two. One for business, one for work. That's a Ramsey. Okay, if you're the deal. kind of person that I is totally it. unsophisticated yeah. when right. it comes to this stuff. Well, okay, well, let's, well, well, let's back up. Let's paying back up. the house for cash. Let's like, back, let's back up. Let's back up. to put it. Exactly. Let's back up. But the point is, the problem is, it, with financial literacy in this country is there is a line where to the left of it, Dave Ramsey's a good idea. Okay. And you hit a point in that line where you go beyond that, where you've got to let those belief systems go and then move into Kiyosaki, those debt. Like if you're flat broke right now and you're got, you know, 12, 15, $20,000 worth of credit card debt, cut them all out. Go date, yeah. go Dave Debit Ramsey card. and figure sure, out how sure. to burn it down. I go get Susie that. Orman. I get that. That's fine. Go that route. Right. But at some point you're going to have to let go of the debt is the devil. Uh, if you ever want to really make money, because you've got to create leverage and you've got to do it through those ways. Find me one there. financial analyst that ever said, you will actually get booted off a board of a public We're company if you are not levered enough. Yeah. Like yeah. that means you're not using your cash appropriately. Well, a hundred, and like Dave Ramsey is, put it away, put it away, put it, put it away. away for what? Lose, that's the thing. Money. No, he starts talking about invest. He eventually gets to a point where he starts talking about investing. He does talk about that. Ramsey's an investor, but it's like invest in mutual funds. Invest in shit no, no, like no, that. I do that believe that it's all safe. It's about as safe as safe. 95, 90% of people plus, I, and I'll throw that number out hey. there. 95% of people should invest in an ETF and never look at it ever again. Yeah. Put your money in mutual funds mm -hmm. with the lowest MERs possible and then never look at the stock market again until you're 10 days out from retirement, yeah. right? And then you realize that compounding interest works and that mutual funds over a period of time outperform all money sure. managers ever, other than like hedge funds. And there's reasons sure. for that. Yeah. But unless you're a high net worth individual that's getting, uh, like Warren Buffett will get issued pipes. But here's, but here's, the, but here's, the, here's the point of that. that you're, exactly what you're saying is accurate because the problem is there are steps <laughs> to, to financial freedom or wealth so, yeah, yeah, yeah. that people never get off a step because their belief system is tied to what got them out of debt. The that, belief system you utilize to get you out of debt is not the belief system you're going to use to make you rich. To be, to be, to, yeah, to it flourish. Doesn't work. Yeah, well, it here's doesn't the work. other thing. I was talking to somebody the other day about bankruptcy. Mm -hmm. and I can't remember exactly who it was, but 
I said, you know, you, you keep over a million dollars in bankruptcy. There is a strategic time to use bankruptcy. Yeah. yeah. Now, again, if you want guys to come up and you, you know, guys, ask you right, right. crazy questions. Horrible question. <laughs> no, but here's the thing. You should take shots. This country's built on taking shots. Huh. Take your shots. Every eight years, you can file a bankruptcy. Let's say you're not doing well. And don't be a piece of shit. Don't, don't steal from people. Work for what you earn. Have a good idea. Work hard or whatever. Yeah. But take a shot, okay? And other people, investors know that, John, you've taken shots that haven't worked out. You've taken shots that haven't worked out. I know that when I put money on a project, that that money could be gone, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. I know that, especially when I take equity, and especially if it's debt with something that has no assets, right? Mm -hmm. So when you understand that, you understand, look, I don't want to ruin people's life. This is what the value of bankruptcy mm -hmm. is that when you have a shot, we want you to take your shot. If you hit, you're the smartest guy on earth, great. The average entrepreneur fails seven times, yeah. plus or minus two, right? Yeah. So take your shots, use money and leverage when you can appropriately, responsibly, and mm -hmm. that, that's the only way to make. I, but yeah. but yet so many people like you I've like never you, heard of we, that. we go for we, <laughs> so no read Dave Ramsey's book you, you, you go from I, no shut it we, off we, we go from yeah. but, but that's the problem in America right we go from no financial literacy to poor man's financial literacy which is Ramsey poor right. man financial literacy to you know and people don't bother to take the steps in, into some things that they see which is, is he nice. like don't take student loans. No, he, he doesn't believe in any no no debt. No debt. He doesn't want you to have any debt. debt free. And he's out there. He's like, I want to be trading people to go preach his stuff. Well, like I mean, it, it's well, it's like a look. There's kindergarten teachers, right? You can't take a college professor and tell them go teach kindergartners. They don't know how to react to that. People. Same thing with vice versa. Same thing with someone that's in debt that doesn't understand that. You can't teach them how, hey, take now, go get more debt, and you're going to make this much well, more money. Me, get to the starting line again, then I'll teach Find you. me the wealthiest again. people in any place, industry, debt, I, city. Ask me one of them Smart if they debt. just just carry cash. No, they're, no, they're, they're, all, they're all debt heavy. They're all, they, you have to be. Well, well debt. Well, okay, let's, okay, for Serviceable example, debt. For, Service. for example, for example, um, you know, a lot like one of the things Kiyosaki says is your house is not an asset because it doesn't produce income. Well, you can weapon you can, and again store of wealth. You, you better you better be sure to do this. But like with me, I lever the mm -hmm. equity in my home through, through the through a home equity line of credit. Sure, and then I get that at you know I guess when I did it, it was three point five whatever it was, and I lever that money on high interest loans that I know I'll get back. So essentially, I'm making eight points. It's arbitrage. That's how you it's get arbitrage. I know it's hundred percent arbitrage. But that. that, but 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 Dave Ramsey would be like, oh, once you get your house paid off, you leave that alone for what? Like you can't. You got to put that. More. You people, got to put it back to work. People are so sensitive about things like my house. Like yeah. I don't want to. There's a lot of people they don't understand what an asset is supposed to do for you. It's supposed to make an asset makes money. Period. That's it. Right. And your, it asset, make money, your house is appreciated. Yeah. Now again, we had problems and crisis because people don't manage it properly. Yeah. Or they over lever or they don't understand. Me, I can take leverage out because I have a job that produces income that I can carry swings. Yeah. If something happened to me, I, I could go out and earn enough income to carry to cover. debt that I have or yeah. whatever. Right? I didn't for my most of my time in America because I couldn't get debt here. Right. Yeah. Right. I had to live without debt. And it's bullshit. Yeah. And I hated it because I had to establish credit here and then slowly work that up. It, it's terrible. Yeah. So it's one of the worst things you can do if you're financially literate, 
because you understand the opportunities that you're, you're foregoing missing, yeah. Yeah. that on a cash to cash basis. That's the only thing that matters to well, me. Especially in real estate, you've got default risk and a cash to cash. You, you have to lever. If you don't lever, you're crazy. But anyway, yeah. if you want to, obviously I'm going to put this out today just so you guys can get, I'll probably come out here in the next couple hours, but um, last chance today to get tickets to clever summit. So if you want to get them virtual tickets today, if you don't, I mean, uh, I can't smart help you, people. but smart dude, people these are some talking. smart. I probably look, normally I do these events. I will roll in, you know, call it maybe two hours before I'm going to be on stage. I do my deal, and then I'm, you know, I maybe linger around for a little bit, and then I'm gone. It's like right? Sean Penn. Yeah, no, I'm not saying Sean Penn. It's what I normally do. This, this, <laughs> no, this, just, this, this event, this I event, it. I will literally be at this event from the very beginning to the very ending, including all of the all of the stuff in between. I'll be yeah. there. And I think I'm only on stage for 15 minutes. I think, you know, because there's so many people speaking. It's like, okay, you're all going to do power talks. And it's like, so trying to compress what we're going to say into 15 minutes, it's going to be like a blitzkrieg of information. So I'll be there the whole time because, you know, obviously I'm going to try to bring as much value as I can, but I'm also not egotistical enough to not think that I'm going to get an incredible value myself out of this. That's why I'm doing it. So, so there you go. Anyway, well, dude, I'm, uh, I'm glad to be back. I'm glad you guys are back. We have no more hiatuses on the schedule for the foreseeable future. Colt, you got anything? Sorry that we left you with the couch episode. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, Sorry. Yeah. Didn't know yeah, that's what we left people with. But the, cob- yeah. the Cabo Cobra. The Cabo Cobra. The Cabo Cobra. So there it is. Um, you know, it's not working for me. It's Bulgarian mongoose. The Bulgarian mongoose. It might just have to be that way forever. Anyway, we will. Uh, <laughs> thanks for listening, guys. Do me a favor. Uh, like and subscribe. Every little bit helps. And remember, if you hate what we do here, make sure you uh, tell a friend. But if you like what we do, tell a friend. If you hate it, tell two, because it doesn't matter if you're talking good or bad. What's the matter? As long as they're talking about you. As long as they're talking about you. See you next time. Hey, it's John Gafford. If you want to catch up more and see what we're doing, you can always go to thejohngafford.com where we'll share any links that we've, things we talked about on the show, as well as links to the YouTube where you can watch us live. And if you want to catch up with me on Instagram, you can always follow me at thejohngafford. I'm here. Give me a shout. What is the creator economy and why should you care? Well, in 2022, there are 3 billion gamers in the world. And by 2027, the industry is expected to be worth more than 339 billion. That is a lot of eyeballs. So if you're asking, how did that happen? Here's your answer. Gamers and the industry have grown up. What used to be something you did in your mom's basement has now evolved to worldwide tournaments, huge conventions, and live streaming on Twitch. Gamers are now considered athletes. 13-year-olds are being called the next all-stars, and major corporate sponsors are joining the bandwagon. Think about it this way. When bank robber Willie Sutton was asked, why do you rob banks? He replied, because that's where the money is. So if you want to know where the money is and get the inside scoop, we are talking today with Mike Sepso. He is one of the true legends in gaming. Mike is best known as the founder of Major League Gaming, a professional esports organization that he sold to Activision Blizzard. Today, Mike is CEO of Vindex, a company that supports everything from in-person gaming studios to some of the biggest esports events on the planet. As one of the people building the future for gaming, he can help us understand the industry's past, 
present, and future, and where exactly brands and marketers fit into it all. So put on your ultra high fidelity 3D gaming headset, or not, and let's take a deep dive into all things gaming. Roll the intro, please. Everything is better with creators. The podcast that takes a deep dive into all things creator economy. Produced and presented by Whaler. Whaler, we power the creator economy. With your hosts, Ashley Rudder, Emma Harmon, Jamie Goodfriend, and Marco Batosi. everyone. Welcome to this episode of Everything is Better with Creators. I'm Jamie Goodfriend, your guide to all things happening in the creator economy. Every week, myself or my colleagues, Marco Petrozzi, Emma Harmon, or Ashley Rudder will be hosting this podcast. Coming up, we're getting right into this episode with our big interview with Mike Sepso from Vindex. If you want to learn about the future of esports, gaming conventions, gamers, and Twitch creators, Get your headphones ready for this amazing episode. Just a reminder that Everything is Better with Creators is brought to you by Whaler. The Whaler Way combines tech, talent, and creative social strategy to match brands with creators and produce authentic content that people really want to see. Whaler is democratizing the creative process for brands and creators by empowering a global talent network of thousands of influencers tastemakers, creatives, and storytellers to connect with your target audience, making advertising more inclusive, diverse, and effective. Check out more at Whaler. That's W-H-A-L-A-R dot com. And now it's time to bring up the headliner of the evening. Please welcome to the stage The Big Interview. Everything is better with creators. I am so excited that I get to talk to Mike Sepso today. And it was uh, really a, a, a amazing that you could make some time because I know how busy you are. So welcome to the podcast, Mike. Thank you, Jamie. I'm really happy to be here. Yeah, I mean, well, so you were actually early here. You're always early. And I like to say you are you were earlier than early in gaming. Uh <laughs> Before anybody, which I guess could be a blessing and, and a curse. Uh, yeah. And I I always learn things from you. Um, but before we get started, and I know it's funny asking you this on a podcast, but what was the name of that restaurant we went to in New York? That was so <laughs> incredible. <laughs> it is Cote, uh, C-O-T-E. Um, oh, my God. Still one of the yeah. best meals I've ever had. <laughs> and see, I learned things from you. It is excellent. Um, they also have... One in Miami now, if you want to go to that. Good to um, know. Good to know. I, I love that. Well, uh, welcome to a post-COVID moment, thank God. And uh, you have a lot going on, so we're going to get into it. I think the okay. main thing we want to do today is really help demystify and unpack the world of gaming and esports and how it connects with the metaverse, how it connects with creators and the opportunity for brands and marketers and all the data that's required. So we'll, we'll cover all of these things. Okay. Uh, but I, it was, it was interesting as well as I know you, and I was digging in doing some research and you've had quite a, 
an incredible career, which I'm going to ask you about. But one of the things that I found that was a common thread through everything you've been doing is that you really understand the audience, which makes a huge difference. And I, and I think that's a rare case in this space where people get into it for the finance or the strategy because they see it's a big thing. Can you, can you just give us a little bit of background? Like you were a gamer. How'd you start? How did, you know, what was the road that started you off? And well, then we'll get to the Vindex story. Sure. Um, I still am a gamer. And I think that's an important part of uh, what I do every day. So I don't play the same kind of games anymore because I'm, you know, in my late 50s. I mean, sorry, in my late 40s, almost 50. So I play different games than I used to. Um, no more Halo? I play a little bit of Halo, but, okay. you know, it's, it's tough to keep up in multiplayer these days, just like I don't play a lot of pickup basketball anymore either. <laughs> um, so, but yeah, I think that's how it started is I, you know, so my best friend and, and I, uh, his name's Sundance Di Giovanni. He and I um, built a, a bit of a agency business back in the late 90s, early 2000s. And as we were exiting that, we were playing a lot of Halo. Um, as one and, does. Yeah, as one does when you have some time in the summer for the first time. Um, we, you know, were excited to have some time off and we wound up, you know, we lived in New York City, downtown in Manhattan. We got to do a lot of fun things and active nightlife and got the summer off and weren't really working. And we wound up just playing more and more and more Halo, um, which was not a terrible thing. Um, there happened to be a really cool club downtown in Chinatown called Fun at the time. If anybody's from the early 2000s, late 90s, New York City scene, that actually in the VIP room, which was kind of elevated above a bar, they would broadcast a PlayStation across the to the wall on the opposite side. So even when we went out, we were still playing a lot. Um, and, and drinking. That, yeah, it was definitely drinking too. But between that and um, going to Yankees games, because we didn't have a lot of time while we were working in the summers, and we're both big Yankees fans, that somehow gelled into MLG, which was kind of the first big commercial esports business. Um, we certainly did not invent esports. In fact, what largely what we did was realize that there was a whole sort of movement around this in South Korea. And so we looked at a, a lot of what was happening there. And then we realized that you know kids, mostly college kids in the US were actually running tournaments. Um, and we thought kind of how can we commercialize that? And our, believe it or not, because um, I know we want to talk about the creator economy a little bit. Our first mission with that company was to support 100 gamers who could have real careers and full-time positions just playing video games professionally. What year was this? That was 2003. So 2003, you it, what was it called MLG in 2003? Um, I think into, yeah, so it had a different name at the beginning. It was just some acronym for something that didn't exist. But <laughs> we eventually, I think in 2003, came up with the name Major League Gaming. And it's so interesting that you had this vision early on about creators and gamers. And were there professional gamers at that point? I know in Korea, they had the PC bang world and that was yeah. kind of happening. And what was it, StarCraft or? StarCraft was really the big game there. There, there were certainly were professional gamers um, as far back as I think late 90s. Um, you could argue that they existed well before that. But 
you know, what, what we were really thinking is kind of less you could make, you know, at that point, I would say it was almost like, you know, early boxing or something. It was like you would go as an independent gamer to a tournament and try to win the cash prize. That's not what we were trying to do, right? We were trying to build a sustainable career opportunity for 100 gamers, which if you think about it now is ridiculous because there's probably 10,000 gamers live on Twitch and YouTube right now that are making way more money than we ever thought. And that's just right now, right? Like in, in real time. So, but at that time, 100 gamers gaming as a career seemed absurd. It was like, it was kind of a big marketing statement that we made just to show how crazy and how committed we were to this concept because we're going to get 100 people to have a career at it. So, well, as I said, earlier than early. Yeah. <laughs> but marketing's <laughs> always ahead of product, Mike. That's just the way of the that's just the way of the world. So that's okay. That true. That's, that's okay. True. But I, but it's amazing though cuz it's I don't even know if people even knew what a creator I, I, people just weren't even thinking about creators then. We were still in that and up and even until recently and we, we won't get into the creator economy, the idea of individuals having any kind of power other than actor or an actress who still need yeah. studios to to grant them their ability well, to think, perform. I think Sundance and I also grew up in the Michael Jordan era when Nike and Michael Jordan grew what was the first real athlete endorsement, you know, ecosystem. Although, you know, I think um, Mark McCann and Arnold Palmer were really the first to do that, right, at IMG. And we eventually got to work with IMG on, on this as well. But um, that was kind of the you know, we, we sort of could guess where this was going. And I think we grew up in that period in the 80s when athletes became superstars and brands associated with them beyond just what it was in the early days. And then obviously through the 90s, like the growth of Nike and the Jordan brand was enormous. So I think I think we had that in mind when we were thinking about what a gamer could be. That's um, so smart. It's uh, so ahead. and And I think that there's still, even though that was already back in 2003 and we're in 2022, I still find that brands don't truly understand gamers. There's a lot of urban myths. I actually yeah. have a couple of stats I wanted to throw at you. Okay. And and uh, But I, I want to unpack why this gaming audience is so important and why brands really should be paying attention to it uh, and how Vindex is helping you do that. Because 46% of females consider themselves gamers. Mm -hmm. or call themselves gamers, which is not surprising to me, but right. is surprising to a lot of brands. 80% of Gen Zs consider gaming to be their hobby, their primary hobby. Yep. And 72% of 35 to 54 year olds engage with gaming daily. So that's way different than what people would expect. We're way yep. gone past, you know, gamer in the mom's basement. Yes. And yeah, but that? I've been explaining that to brands and agencies for literally 20 years. So it's the conversation hasn't changed in two decades. The people have. And what I would tell you is, you know, early days, I would say like the 2004, 5, 6 era of, of Major League Gaming, there were very few people in the agency or brand side that understood it at all. There were also very few people in the video game industry that understood it at all. Um, and 
what's changed, I think, is 20 years later, there are people in media agencies and brand managers who grew up then, right? I've even done investor pitches where, you know, a, a VP of a fund will come up to me after the meeting and just, like, want to shake my hand because they, you know, their childhood was deeply impacted by MLG and our TV show and those kind of things. So I think it's a generation, and, and it's funny because I remember in 2003 and four, um, you know, talking to investors then and, and most people and even even agency people saying like, this is never really going to happen, is it? And I, and I said, well, worst case, I'm just going to have to wait for you to retire because whoever replaces you is totally going to get it because that's who's watching this today. Right. And so but- that's definitely happened. But what's the happen? So I guess console games, like we, the, everybody knows that console games and Activision, uh, yeah. you know, Call of Duty, those kind of things are huge. Uh, but what's the it's going to happen in your mind? And are we just talking esports? Are we talking mobile games? How do you define the well, happening? Yeah. So when I was, you know, in the frame of reference of early MLG days, happen was that esports was going to become a thing. And and keep in mind, I don't think it was until much later, 2007, 8, or 9, where people started to use the word esports. We called it pro gaming or competitive gaming back then. Um, there were some standout people who got it, who saw ahead. I, one was Frank Cooper, who is now CMO at Visa, but at the time was, um, you know, I think a in charge of kind of lifestyle and entertainment marketing for Pepsi, um, for Pepsi mm-hmm. beverage. And he had come out of the music industry and was a, you know, marketing executive at a huge, you know, portfolio of brands. And I remember him saying, this is definitely going to be huge. I don't know how we can interact with it yet, but, you know, and I remain friends with Frank through the years and have, you know, he's kind of seen it happen, which has been really interesting. And I think he's one of the, you know, kind of standout people in, in marketing over the past few decades. So, um, but there, I don't want to say that like nobody got it in on the agency side or the brand side. I think people did. Um, and I think the, you know, I remember also having a, a meeting in Detroit at Plantworks um, where one of the marketing execs there said to me, um, yeah, I don't really get any of this. My kids play video games. I guess we can sprinkle a little cash on it as a trial or so, you know, maybe for one of our entry level cars. And then the, my sales person who was there with me started talking, started talking about it. Like it was sort of soccer, you know, you, everybody plays soccer, but it's not a big professional sport. And same thing with gaming. All kids play games. Eventually it's going to be a sport. And he was kind of making that. And the guy stopped him and said, yeah, our dance card is full in this country on sports. Soccer's never going to be a thing either. (laughs) <laughs> yeah so you uh, know yes. i think it's the same mentality right yeah. it's like i can only see what's right in front of me i'm not really thinking ahead about culture or people and i think because i've never really been on the agency side i've never marketed anything unless it was something i came up with i i tend to think more like the audience you've never had to sell mayonnaise that's a <laughs> you know when you're selling mayonnaise that's a that's that's a that's a whole other story but yeah yeah but it's I, I think we've seen this we've seen this movie before, right? Where oh my kids are playing it and pick anything. Pick digital, yeah. pick yeah. TikTok, pick the Roblox, Minecraft. There's so many of these things. You'd think that 
it would get to the point where there'd be a bit more belief, but there is a lack of data insights, infrastructure. And yeah. I've often described when people have said to me, what is Vindex? And I say, and I try to do my best at explaining it, but I say, you know, remember in the gold rush, how Levi's, <laughs> they made money not trying to dig for gold, but to clothe and handle the the miners. That's, that's Vindex. Yeah. Vindex is yeah. like, NFL films plus Levi's plus everything else. So what's your what's your elevator speech on Vindex and how are you helping people get this vision and take it forward and, and build a business? So uh, yeah, look, look, I describe Vindex as a gaming technology company. We, you know, we deploy different types of technology to accomplish solving big problems for the video game industry and the different constituents that want to play around with the video game industry. So we started by helping big publishers um, kind of operate their esports leagues and produce the content behind it. Um, we, we also started by ingesting lots of data across the entire ecosystem to try to do a better job ourselves, but then to kind of build it out. We've invested in a consumer platform, Belong Gaming Arena, so that we can bring um, the esports and sort of gaming culture and experience to hometowns everywhere. Um, but effectively, what we're trying to do is the, the video game industry, I think, you know, the, uh, the other stat, in addition to still having to explain esports and gaming to marketers and agencies, the thing I'm still also doing um, it is kind of explaining to the video game industry how media works, right? The Right. When I started, just, just to back up, we eventually sold MLG to Activision Blizzard in 2015, and I became the head of a new division there to kind of consolidate media and esports in, in one group. And at the time, I said to my boss, the CEO of the company, you know, I'm, I'm employee like 9,578, and I'm the only one here who's ever sold an ad. We're going to have a lot of work to do to kind of make this. <laughs> right. Um, you know, because my job was to create a league structure and a media business that would monetize that league opportunity. I think more interestingly for Vindex, what we're doing today is the entire industry, it's it's now, th this is another fact in, in that, you know, explaining this world to marketers and agencies. I don't think anybody realizes, I think everybody's seen the stat that like, okay, games are bigger than movies and music and things like that. Gaming from a revenue perspective globally is almost two and a half times larger than social media, right? It's bigger than everything. And the growth rate is higher. So, you know, close to 9% growth annualized over the next five, six years. In players or in revenue? Revenue, starting wow. at about $200 billion in revenue and growing pretty substantially from there. Um, one of the things that's impacting the overall industry, though, if you think about the the big constituent players, the EAs and Activisions and Microsofts and Sonys, and kind of, they're all moving towards games as a service and different business models, whether it's free to play or subscription like Game Pass that, that Microsoft has, which is really also interesting because it's not really driven by the game companies. It's not because of technical disruption, it's because of consumer demand which is exactly the same thing that happened to eSports. E wasn't a tech technical innovation. Like we didn't create some new software at MLG and then eSports became a thing. We 
created some software to do different things, but it wasn't, that's wasn't what it was. And I always, you know, when I meet new people or when I started at Activision Blizzard as a senior vice president, I would meet people and, you know, shake their hand and say, I remember you because you sent me a cease and desist letter 10 years ago. (laughs) (laughs) We didn't, you know, we were responding to the whole industry as gamers and consumers and, and recognizing this huge consumer demand that really pulled the industry in that place. It's happening again. It's happening with free to play. It's happening with games as a service. So, you know, obviously the retail channel doesn't exist. You don't go to a GameStop and buy a game for $65 anymore, but you still pay $65 and you download it. What the consumers really want, and whether you're talking about League of Legends or Fortnite or most mobile games, is an experience that's free and you pay for value inside the game once once you start playing it. None of that is technically driven. That's just responding to how consumers want to play games. And just- the... The technical part, the digital download, that happened 15 years ago, right? That's been around since the internet. So you don't, that's not what changed it. The fact that you could download a game didn't change the industry. They just charged you $65 to download it instead of drive to the store and buy it. But But now it's it's changing. Yeah, but it's still this, I still think that people think of it as a niche. And maybe it's the $200 billion niche. 2.77 billion people play yeah. games in the yeah. world yeah. of a population of seven point something billion. So yeah. I, I'm right there with you and I, I'm I'm agreeing with you. I'm just still mesmerized by the ability to pe- for people to not see where the world is going because yeah. it's not in line with what their interests are. Yeah. And I, I look at Arcane and that launch and it's interesting. You talk to some people and for those who may not know, that's uh, Riot Games has League of Legends and they launched mm-hmm. I'm, t- I'm telling you, Mike, like you don't know, but I'm telling the people who are listening. Uh, that's Netflix um, created, they created content, but uh, Riot Games created it and painstakingly yeah. created it. Yep. And among fans, I think it has like a 98% positive rating on Rotten Tomatoes. And if you are a fan, people think it's fantastic. But industry people say, eh, it's not, it's not as big as it could have been, should have been, would have been. And... I think it was such a brilliant integrated marketing campaign. It was on Twitch. It was, they had music videos. They had a band. I mean, just brilliant state of the art. And yet, if you talk to entertainment gurus, they go, eh, I mean, what is that? Yeah, look, I, you know, I, funny, I had a, so you know, Jamie, but my girlfriend is a musician and um, is a Sony artist, and I often kind of socialize with people in the music industry, and they're always curious, you know, and and you have these funny conversations, and they're usually, like any industry in entertainment or media, they're complaining about, you know, something that, it doesn't, isn't it awful how this happens, or blah, 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 or isn't this so stupid, we still do this, and I've had some very... Um, very, very senior music executives say to me, well, well, what do you think of, you know, I know what you do now. What do you think of the music industry? And I say, I think it's just really small. I don't know how to explain <laughs> it to you any other way. I think it's just tiny. Like it's, it, you know, it, the, and I think that's the, the situation. It's the sort of size of an industry from a business and financial perspective, the ratio to its cultural impact 
that's what you're seeing. Like people that don't see gaming are seeing just the sort of mainstream cultural impact, right? Like video games don't have an Oscars, but all anybody talked about for the last couple of weeks was the Oscars and how crazy, you know, it's like, and let's face it, like almost nobody watches the Oscars anymore. And everybody who was talking about it wasn't talking about what won Best Picture. I don't think anyone saw the movie that won Best Picture. <laughs> it was like a very small movie. Right. But um, but the cultural impact of those industries, of music, of film, of those things, it's in TV in a way. And now we're talking about you know streaming TV, not broadcast TV. But I think that's the thing is if you don't exist in the part of the culture that talks about it all day, because if you ask a typical you know, kind of somebody in their early 20s, they're going to know, they're going to have a lot more sort of cultural talking points about gaming than they would about, sure. you know, CODA or any of the best picture noms this year. And so yeah. I think, you know, that's where the world's heading. It's just a generational wave. Like, you know, I... I like electricity? Up. Yeah, well, I was going to say, I often sort of um, compare it to hip-hop, right? I grew up in the 80s, right outside of New York City. Hip-hop's been a part of my life since I was, I don't know, 11, 10 or 11, something like that. It just was, it already, always existed to me, just like classic rock always existed, and eventually punk and alternative and all the different kinds of music that I used to listen to. But for my, you know my aunts and uncles and other relatives who were 10 or 15 years older than me, it was like a foreign language they're never going to understand. And it wasn't music. And it was, the, you know, it was like, and I just never got it. I was like, I don't know what you're talking about. Have you listened to run DMC ever? It's, it's absolutely amazing. And I still listen to hip hop, right? I'm still interested in new artists and like that, but the, there's a generational divide. Anybody kind of born five to 10 years before me probably just never got it unless they really went out of their way to understand it. And that's kind of what, what gaming is. Although gaming has been around for a very long time, gaming as sort of a mainstream, always connected activity didn't really, I don't think, start to take off until the 90s and really just 10 years ago became kind of a super dominant media format. So you're going to see it happen over the next 20 years. And I can tell 20 you 20 years. I yeah. no, come on. No, not another 20 years. I don't, I can't. That's well, let that's me see so this. Right. I, I think I've made some crazy statements over, over the past 20 years about how big gaming was going to get. <laughs> I think that from a cultural impact point of view, from a sort of a mainstreaming where every generation currently in the world can talk about gaming in a sort of similar way. Right. And I think, a lot of it to me sort of goes back to like the theses in, in Sapiens, that great book, right? It's like, if everybody doesn't believe in the myth, like video games aren't really a thing. It's, you know, you, the lore of Halo is the same thing as a religion to some people. Like you can, or World of Warcraft or any of these games, like you can talk about it with people who are steeped in that world, just like you could talk about religion to some people or Tolkien or some, you know, Star Wars for me, right? Like, People can't, there's there's an age gap where people don't understand anything that you're talking about. It's like foreign to them. I think similarly with sports, I'm a huge Yankees fan. Um, Sundance and I used some of our MLG money to buy great season tickets for the Yankees. You know, and we're both turning 50 this summer. I think we're the youngest people in our section. 
yeah. right, at Yankee Stadium. So I think that the world is turning in a different direction and away from a lot of things that happen. And I remember, and I'm sure you do, growing up, that there was all of this worry among teachers and the federal government that kids were watching six to eight hours of television a day and MTV was going to ruin everybody's lives. Well, that six to eight hours has been replaced by gaming, right? Kids don't watch TV anymore. They're playing games. And when they're not playing, a lot of them are watching game videos on Twitch and YouTube. Yeah, let's stick with that. That's the pivot point that I find so fascinating. And I, and I do have a bone to pick with marketing executives not, because I've been on both sides. I've been on the brand side and the marketing sure. side. And there's a lot of fear. There's a lot of not knowing. But I think it's their job to learn so that they can help their businesses. But the, the facts are, and I've had this debate with quite a few people recently, and I think I'm going to get, I get in trouble a lot. But let's face it, CPMs are going up for TV and ratings are down. So yeah. that's kind of invert, inverse and crazy. Eyeballs are moving, especially with younger kids. Y- you can't find them. They're scarce. You cannot find them. Where are they spending their time? They're spending their time on non-commercial content. They will actually pay money so that they don't have to see ads. They hate at traditional ads. Yep. They are in games. They're in Roblox. And they're they're not available. So why is so much money still being poured into TV? And I always say to people, it's because nobody gets fired for buying a TV ad. That's because that's what the infrastructure is built for. However, and I think this is where Vindex is coming in, the infrastructure has not really been built in a way that supports massive investment by advertisers in gaming. And If it's and I've had a conversation. Um, I was talking to Dylan Collins from Super Awesome, which Epic bought about yeah. a year or so ago. And what we were saying is, as much as the eyeballs are there, you can't write an IO for fifty million dollars and buy media across gaming. You just can't yeah. do it in that same way. So, how are you saving it? What are you doing, Mike? <laughs> What's your role? How are you picking this up and, yeah. and helping make this happen? Well, look, I think the first thing is there is massive amounts of engagement in a media format that should feel very native to most media planners and buyers and agency executives because it's still linear video and it's live or on demand. Um, but I, I think the good news is, and, and I don't want to... Um, I'm not being critical of in-game advertising when I say this, but if everybody, if marketers are really just looking at how do I put an ad in a game, they're missing something huge, which is called Twitch and YouTube, right? Amazon and Google happen to own these massive high, high engagement platforms that keep huge numbers, millions and millions and millions of people right in the demo that most marketers want to hit engaged for hours. And I think largely because those media platforms were started by big tech companies, not entertainment conglomerates. They didn't come at it from a, how do I build this around an ad, right? I mean, effectively, 30-minute TV programs were built around advertising. Seasons for new sitcoms were built around car ads way back when, right? Like Right. So 22 whole, episodes. Yeah, the whole industry. and. 22 minutes of programming and eight minutes of ads and promo, like 
there's no way a tech company was ever going to adopt that ethos. So they took it from the, how do I keep consumers engaged? You know, how do I build users and keep them engaged on my platform more and more and more? And then the case of both Twitch and YouTube, it was not just how do I keep viewers, but how do I keep creators and grow a whole creator economy? Because I don't really want to produce content. People produce their own content and then other people watch it. Why don't I create an ecosystem? So I think that ecosystem ethos, which is, you know, you, you think of it like you're building a pond or a source of food or something like that. And then lots of different parties in that ecosystem come to eat together. Like that's how I think about Twitch. It's people creating content for people that want to view that content. Same thing with YouTube, right? They pioneered it in VOD. Twitch really kind of killed it in live. Both, and I think this was not well understood, and I think YouTube, you know, sort of purposely tried to downplay this. Gaming content was the predominant content on YouTube for a long time, way back when YouTube was selling ads against Vivo, you know, music videos and right. health and beauty and those kind of things. Most of the action was in gaming content. Um, Twitch started as a gaming platform and it's since expanded out a little bit. But I think that whole world of like people creating and sharing with other people really is native to the gaming consumer activity or behavior. And so our approach has been, you know, and I've suffered the pain now for 20 years of trying to sell ads and sponsorships against video game content and esports and those kind of things where you just don't have any data. There's not much you can show. The entire landscape is still a very fractured data landscape. So what we've done with Vindex is, you know, first part of our business is called the Esports Engine. We help big publishers create their esports content and operate their leagues and those kind of things. We're producing hundreds of hours, thousands of hours of content for on Twitch and YouTube every year. So we started measuring all of it. We just built a really big data warehousing capability um, to just pull in all the data we possibly could without really knowing what we're going to do with it. Then we started optimizing our own program. So if we're creating a broadcast for Activision, we're sort of like fine-tuning it by seeing how the audience reacts to different segments and sort of normalizing that. But now we've been doing that for the past two years. And so we've been ingesting, um, you know, many terabytes of data per week across the whole ecosystem, Twitch and YouTube gaming, Twitter, Reddit, sort of everywhere that gamers touch, just ingesting lots and lots of data, whatever is publicly available. Likewise. Audiences on every single channel, every few minutes across both platforms. So we're watching, you know, how audiences react to different things. For our own content that we're producing for our customers, we're, you know, watching what we're programming. So is it a replay section? Is it a live game? Who's playing? you know, sort of all the, all the metadata around that particular broadcast so that we can see how audiences react to different things and where patterns emerge. Ultimately, what we were trying to do is not solve an advertising problem. We were just trying to get a better understanding of how the whole ecosystem reacts. Because I think one of the things that's going to start to happen, and this can tie into, you know, your metaverse point at the end is in the metaverse, but also in the way that gamers react today, we are not platform oriented necessarily. So the ad sales and media world is based on, you know, everybody a hundred years ago got went to the upfronts and sold you all the new NBC shows. And right. you bought that from the NBC sales exec who took you out to play golf. And then 
that turned into digital. And then you were hearing the same thing at the new fronts from Yahoo and AOL. And then skip ahead. Everyone's still, you're buying a platform, not necessarily maybe some content on that platform. And that's what gets you hooked, but you're really buying the platform. I think where this is heading is because creators are so powerful because, because the game brands are so powerful because those experiences are so powerful. You don't necessarily just want to buy, you know, so if you want to be associated with Fortnite, for instance, you don't necessarily just want to be associated with Fortnite on Twitch. You might want to be associated with Fortnite on Reddit and YouTube and Discord and lots of places. And you might more interestingly want to be associated with Ninja, who's a really popular Fortnite player. And maybe you also want to work with Epic on some educational things because Fortnite happens to be a great creator tool and not just a video game. And you have to think more broadly as a marketer. I think what we're trying to do is solve that ecosystem data approach. So I don't know exactly yet. We just announced last week a partnership with the IAB to create a bunch of workshops so that we can talk to media agencies about, hey, we have this massive amount of data and we know more about gaming consumers than anybody else does. What kind of things could we build on top of this? What sort of insights are you looking for that will help you better inform your workflow, kind of adjust to this way of thinking, and frankly, just shine a light on the whole ecosystem so you're not just looking you know, through a periscope to kind of one part of the ecosystem, you can see the whole thing. You can see how audiences go from platform to platform to platform. What we're not solving for yet is what's happening in the game. And I do think there are a lot of great um, small tech companies that are fixing or trying to come up with great solves for in-game. But I also see it as a problem because, you know, sort of like HBO back in the day or Netflix now, a lot of those premium experiences consumers are now just willing to pay for because they don't want an ad. Right. And you know, all of the ad, if you took the, if you sort of sat down with the franchise manager for call of duty and you said, Johanna, I'm going to give you like, here's a 10 X what any other ad, you know, sale ever happened on a big TV show. It, it wouldn't make, it wouldn't move the needle for call of duty, right? Like the revenue generated through the game is an order of magnitude bigger than anything that that audience would warrant on a CPM purchase basis. Correct. You're just never going to get in those big games. It's like the same reason Netflix doesn't want to blow up its user experience by putting a bunch of ads in front of everybody because they could just keep raising the monthly subscription fee and nobody seems to churn out. At least for now. Right, right. Well, I do know, and... Full disclosure, I'm an advisor for Anzu, which yep. is doing, you know, in-game programmatic. But but to that point, they're one of the companies I was talking about. I think Freeplay, Anzu, there's a bunch of companies yep. that are approaching it really interestingly because there's also 2.7 billion people that play right. games. Exactly. There's, there's only tens of millions who play Call of Duty. 2.7 billion play games. Yeah. And there's tons of inventory available out there in mobile games and casual games and more in PC and some console games. That's going to be a big category of advertising, but it's probably not going to be, you know, it's unrealistic to think it's going to be the entire ecosystem of games, right? It's going to be huge audiences, highly engaged. Like I get ads because I play mobile games a lot. And so the ones that I don't pay for, I'm seeing ads and I'm You're seeing the product. every once in a while. But, but I, I love this. I love this idea of the ecosystem though. And I think mm-hmm. that is a really smart way of looking at it. And in fact, when you look at e-commerce, what a lot of brands don't realize is that when you have a D2C site, your D2C site 
especially how it connects with Google and SEO uh, and how your user behavior is. You've got, say you have a D2C site, then you've got Walmart, Target, and Amazon. Well, much of the time, the ecosystem, you're spending money to promote D2C. The user sees that. As a brand, you shouldn't really care if they buy it on your D2C or if they go to buy it on Amazon because it's free shipping and it's faster and they can also buy their toothpaste if you're not a toothpaste manufacturer. But when when you change the behavior in the ecosystem on the D2C site, it affects your target Walmart and Amazon. They're all linked. And it is an ecosystem good or bad. And most brands don't get that. Some, some do obviously, but most don't. And it's not channel. You, you have to be like, that's what omni channel truly is. And I wonder if this is like omni gaming. I'm a consumer. I want to be able to buy whatever I want to buy, whether it's buy online, pick up in store. I want to buy it from your D to C. I want to buy it. However I want to buy it. That's what it should be. And with gaming, I'm sort of making this leap here. I could be completely nuts and wrong it feels like there's an opportunity to say, I may want to play in Roblox, watch that gamer on YouTube, go over here to, you know, this game that's free, whatever it might be, I'm going to flow through the way I want to. You can't constrain my viewing habits. I, yes, I, I actually agree with you. And I think it goes back to what I was saying before about how innovation happens in the video game industry. It happens through consumer demand, not technical innovation. Unlike the right, think about the music industry, it's completely transformed by the internet, totally techni- technical transformation. It wasn't necessarily consumers saying like, I don't like these things anymore. It was just easier and technology changed the music industry. Technology dramatically changed television in the past 10 years. Right. Technology doesn't change the video game industry because gamers demand what gamers want to do. And the industry responds. And I think that I'm trying to take that kind of message, which I think is what you're saying too, to the advertising world and saying, look, I just, I got to be real with the advertising world. 20 years ago, you might've had more power than the, the gaming industry. Today, you really don't. You know, you kind of, you're, you're not anytime soon getting an ad in Netflix. You're not, you know, HBO went from cable to streaming and they still don't have ads in the platform. You're losing places to put ads in front of, younger consumers and if you don't start thinking about how they behave if you don't start understanding how gamers behave and every gamer is not the same there's 2.7 billion of them right clearly people that play wordle and and you know (laughs) mobile games are different than call of duty players and fortnite players and you know younger kids play roblox and minecraft and then they grow up and play fortnite and call of duty and that's kind of how things happen but there's a wealth of games out there. There's lots of different experiences and, and it's not just the game. It's also the videos of the game, right? If you watch kids play Roblox you're, and you follow them around for the day, I can guarantee you they're watching Roblox videos on YouTube later and yeah, going back to playing and then watching more YouTube videos on Roblox. And then, the, you know, that's kind of how it works. And you can pretty accurately predict what games are going to be popular based on viewership on Twitch and YouTube gaming. hundred percent. I, I totally agree. What I have the same conversation sometimes with brands and particularly with media agencies because the brands are starting to really see it because in terms of uh, social video like and with creator content <clears throat> and it's but it's not a a standard line item on their media plans just like gaming right. isn't. Yeah. TV is. Yeah. And 
creator content is still, sometimes it's the PR team. Sometimes it's like the 22 year old social media intern. You know, there's, there's a lot of, um, it's all over the place. So on one company, we're dealing with, you know, global CMO and on another company, we're dealing with the intern. So I think that there's this, it's, it's, it's kind of fun. I mean, it's fun. It's the, it's again, the wild west, but we know, and I'm, we're actually getting ready to release a, a research study in about a month about consumer behavior with creators and what's happening on that side. And we do know that they actively avoid ads and it's not ads. Uh, it's, it's traditional ads. So it's not about getting better creative. It's traditional ads. They just avoid, they'll pay extra money they're not on there. And I think the other thing that we're seeing is that this 24-7 always-on community of content, whether it's through creators and gamers or creators, same thing, you don't have to wait for a day and date. You don't have to wait for a new season or a, a new launch or for a publisher to post new content. It's always there. Yeah. So as a media buyer, you got to find a way to get into merge into traffic and hold your own and add value. And that is not what the system is used is used to. And there you're gonna get rejected very quickly. I think that I think it's a burning platform moment. I don't know if you do. I I think right now we're at a burning platform moment. Yeah. Look, I'm not close enough, you know, to your world to make that prediction, but from my perspective, um, look, advertising is not going away, but how ads get created and placed and what they are is certainly gonna change a lot. And so, you know, I think that the, again, the, the infrastructure which made the media business so efficient is now holding it back from adapting to all the new formats and new consumer behaviors. And I think that for sure is, it's tough. I think that's why you see brands taking more in-house because more of it is sort of broadly experiential, right? It's like live experiences and different formats and and property associations, what we used to call sponsorships, right? Versus kind of just spots and dots because there aren't as many spots and dots. And what's crazy is you're right, like television audiences are cratering and CPMs are going up. That doesn't really happen. <laughs> like <laughs> Scarcity, it's, but it, nobody, it, but it's, you're chasing, especially for younger consumers, you cannot yeah. find them. I, t I totally, right. I totally agree. And a lot of times what we're seeing with gaming content too, um, <clears throat> is that keep brands, smart brands are using the content that gamers and or creators are making as their creative production strategy. You don't have to go to a studio. You don't have to yeah. go and have fancy long-term production shoots that cost bazillions of dollars. That world is shifting. I'm not saying it's dead, but it's certainly shifting. So for you guys, for Vindex, and I know um, I've kept you for quite a long time. This has been fascinating. I could talk to you all day. How do people, like if I'm a brand and I want to learn more, what, what what's the use case? Am I coming? I love the idea that you're doing brand workshops. What's my use case with Vindex? What do you want people yeah. to think about? So look, ho hopefully the value that we can provide the advertising world is to again, kind of illuminate and explain this world, right? We think that there is a massive treasure trove of engaged audiences that you can put pretty standard creative in front of in a fairly normal way on Twitch and YouTube. 
but we also think that thinking more broadly about the games, the esports leagues, the creators, the teams, that whole world is very, very big now, and we can help you understand it with real data. Um, I think the way to engage, so, so today we don't work with brands very often. Occasionally, um, we work with you in a we prior- We tried. <laughs> yeah, we tried. Uh, we've, we've done some of it. You know, we are primarily working with big video game publishers and studios, teams and, and agencies and that are working with creators. Um, and we have a consumer platform. What we're trying to do for the advertising world is say, let us sort of show you how this whole ecosystem works with real data, right? We've built a very big platform. We know it works because we've been using it internally for two years to make this type of content and distribute this content more smartly. So there's a few things that we can do for brands. First is, you know, if you're an IAV member, we can invite you to this workshop and you can give us real product. We can show you what the data is and you can tell us how you'd like to slice and dice it and do you want to integrate it into your workflow? And I don't know if people still use MediaOcean, but, you know, those kind of tools that we can try to integrate some of this data into. Hopefully, we can help you build better media planning tools for this world. Um, and, you know, at the end of the day, what we'd like to do is help you make better buying decisions and get real scale, right? Get TV level scale because it exists today for sure. You're just thinking too narrowly about, single platforms and not thinking more broadly enough about how do I reach a really wide consumer basis and how do I associate with particular games or particular parts of gaming culture? Um, how do I work with lots of different influencers, right? That's, it's still done very hand to hand and we're going to try to provide enough data and a, enough sort of workflow integration to make that a smoother on-ramp. I think the other thing is, and I've certainly been guilty of this, but not for five to 10 years is, I think a lot of marketers have been scared that like gaming's huge, but if you make the wrong move or if you're inauthentic in any way, you'll never be invited back to this party. And let me tell you, as one of the people who made this whole esports mess in the first place, it's way too big for that. You can make all kinds of mistakes and figure it out later. There's no single thing that's going to make you, you know, one mistake is not going to mean your brand will never resonate with with gamers, there's 2.7 billion gamers, right? Like <laughs> you're, you're not, we're, we're past that point. Just like, you know, we're not in the 15 years ago world where gaming is small and niche and this thing where everybody sort of shared the same headspace. It doesn't exist anymore. There's lots of room to make mistakes and experiment. So it's a kinder, gentler audience perhaps, or it's just so big. It's just so big. I would say it's not kinder, gentle in most cases, but you know, not any different from, um, sports fans or, you know, look, you, you put the wrong creative on a, you know, local sports broadcast and the home team fans are going to hate you. And it's not any different from that. There's lots of, lots of niches that have different community tastes and things like that in this space, but there's no such such thing as making a mistake that is going to be read as inauthentic by gamers. And therefore you're blacklisted from gaming for the next 10 years. So I would urge people to get in an experiment, how they can work with us is, you know, work through the IAB in our workshops to see the data and, and we will, you know, within, before the end of the year, roll out a full platform approach to that. Um, I think the other thing is the kind of content that we create for some of the biggest video game companies in the world, the biggest games in the world, you know, some of the biggest events that have happened live on Twitch and YouTube and places like that, we can actually apply that to brand content 
right? So as brands are thinking about outside of the box of the 30 second spot, do you want to more actively engage with this world? Well, a great way to do that is kind of integrate yourself into the content itself. That's, I wouldn't suggest that as first step in, but if you've got a little bit of experience in the space, you know, we, we create, I think, more content, premium content on Twitch than anybody else does on Twitch and YouTube gaming um, for most of the big game companies. And we work with most of the creators and most of the agencies and teams. So we have the connectivity to kind of put that together. And I think looking ahead at the future, you know, when you think about what the metaverse is, um, it's it's already existed for most gamers for a really long time. Right. right? It's not It's not a foreign concept. And I think um, you know, I start to think of it as how do you create a better consumer interactive experience in a, in a environment that's a little bit more game-like. And I think that's what, you know, but if you ask people like, um, to give you an example of the metaverse, they'll say like, Oh, the, the marshmallow DJing a set to 11 million people in Fortnite, or, you know, the cast of star Wars flying the millennium Falcon around inside of Fortnite. We actually did those things like marshmallow was in our studio in burbank he wasn't actually in the metaverse but that those are the kind of things that we can do technically so i think that's not something i don't think we could a brand could necessarily leap right into that world today and we don't we don't really do advisory but you know certainly for the more advanced brands um, that think of themselves more like media properties and want to be more playing around in the content space not just purely ad creative and ad messaging. That's something that we're starting to get a lot more incoming requests about. How do we, you know, how does this brand play in that world? Not just how do I integrate it in some content that's going to exist, but how do I create some content or integrate into some content or how do I think about this more broadly? So I think that's probably going to continue to be more of a business for us in the future as well. I love that. It's a, you're a franchise enabler accelerator in a new channel because that's a only an expert marketer could have consolidated that. <laughs> but that's i mean <laughs> or someone that's just a huge fan because i think that's i think that's what you just said in a way which just and i've heard what you are doing but that was a new way of looking at it that was really inspiring because if you've got ip that ip in theory should be appropriate to whatever audience age it is, if that audience is in gaming or that audience is going to the movies or that audience is uh, skiing or whatever the heck that audience does, you should be there with them adding yeah. value no matter what they're doing. Um, I, I do think you guys are going to be in the advisory business, but maybe not in a traditional agency style way. In fact, I might ask you to be in the advisory business because <laughs> I, got, I got some clients we have to talk about, Mike. Um, but it all comes back down to for where we started this conversation. Um, you know the audience, and mm -hmm. it sounds like Vindex is a true north for understanding the psychology of this audience, not just of gamers. Of this, that just is where they happen to play and the ecosystem. Yeah. Um, and the and the way I always talk about it is know your audience, speak their language, and understand their world. And you guys seem to be the the cultural diplomats that can guide people along this really exciting journey. I, I can't wait to, I can't wait to see more and maybe take the class. And we've got lots to talk about Mr. Sepso. Excellent. Well, look, I think it's what you said at the beginning of the conversation, the quote, I don't remember the exact percentage, but 80 something percent of Gen Z says gaming is their primary hobby. 
which means as Gen Z ages into be, becoming the dominant consumer base, 80-something percent of consumers will be primarily gamers. So the kinds of places they're going to want to play around and be consumers, and they're going to be like games. So the, the whole world is moving into a gaming environment, and I think that's, um, that's the world that we've been living in for a long time. That's the world that we're helping big video game companies create. But I do think that there's a tremendous opportunity for brands to kind of think ahead, get in early and experiment and kind of carve out space. So I know a bunch of them have kind of gone in and bought, you know, metaverse real estate as an option on the future. But, you know, interacting more with a broader consumer base in the space is probably a better idea to learn from than that. Amen to that. Well, Mike Sepso, Vindex, loved seeing you. This was the best conversation. We weren't even eating or drinking or anything. (laughs) Next time we're going back to Coke. That sounds great. Thank you for joining us today, Mike. Thanks, Jamie. Thanks for having me. We hope you've enjoyed what you've heard and will come along with us as we navigate this exciting journey to the promised land of the creator economy. Make sure to subscribe or follow our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, or wherever you like to listen to audio. And of course, we'd love a rating and review if you get the opportunity. And special thanks to Mike Sepso for joining us. Make sure to check out more from Whaler and all things at the intersection of talent, partnerships, technology, and creativity at whaler.com. And follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. For everything is better with creators, I'm Jamie Goodfriend. We'll catch you next time. with creators is produced by Whaler. Whaler, we power the creator economy. Learn more at whaler.com.